Hi, everybody. Welcome to tonight's program with Coach Menachem Berfeld. Tonight is Shear 172. Thank you for coming on this freezing winter summer, winter night over here on the East Coast. It's like 10 degrees. Zippel is probably like when Utah, what is it, 95? It's probably sunny. Probably there's a foot of snow outside. We're, 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 we're also hanging the winter holidays. It's a... Okay, so first of all, I can thank everybody for uh, really promoting our platform and all the on all the places and promoting it on WhatsApp and telling people about it. Please let friends and family know and post it all over. Um, we have an amazing lineup. We have a lot of speakers actually coming up. We'll get into that shortly. And uh, tonight's year is a very sensitive topic, and Hashem hopefully will cover a lot. Keep that in mind. And it's a topic to really schmooze it out and try to get some clarity on a lot of these topics that we need to really cover that we... Honestly, in the almost four years, we never really tackled this topic specifically. If anybody wants to join our WhatsApp chats, uh, Menachem will be sending out an email. It's going to have the links to the communities. We're going to be sending out everything only on the community. Uh, if you want to WhatsApp me at 732-314-1710, I can add you to the community. And you can go to menachembernfeld.com and sign up for the flyer as well. I'm also going to post the community chats on the in the chat in the Zoom. If anybody's watching this replay on YouTube, you click on the like button and on the subscribe button. So Menachem posts every week, you can you get the ding, you know about it, and people can know about it. Again, thank you to all the advertising sponsors that promote us on all the platforms. Lakewood Scoop here in Lakewood, Ellie and Ariel from Five Town Central, and Kyla Kaufman from JCM from always, for always promoting us on all the digital Jewish platforms. Again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30 on the Zoom ID, come out four years, up to the four-year anniversary very shortly. Um, spread the word. The next week, January 29th, we're going to have a deep share. You ready? Rebbe Zippel, you know what's coming on next week? With Reb Zalman Duchman, the topic's going to be called Addressing the Current Situation in Eretz Yisrael, Guidance effect, Effective Tzedakah Giving, where we can give our money to help in Eretz Yisrael, not just the Kail Chabad, obviously, for other things, <laughs> but hopefully it should be a good topic, and he's very involved in Eretz Yisrael now. I know we did we did, we did the Eli Beer, we did Chaya Gracher, so now we're doing Zalman Duchman, and hopefully it'll be a Gishmak Hashir next week. Please join and let everybody know about it. Tonight we have the Schuss and the honor of having two very famous people we have here. Dr. Um, Gabriel Fagan, who's very, uh, if everybody knows him, he's very well known in all the communities. He's the doctor that deals with all these abuse cases, and he's called them by all the schools. I found out my spouse and myself, people use him all over. He's one of the most foremost, I'll read his bio soon, but he's the, he's the leader in this topic. Also together, very last minute, Reverend Romy Zeppel, who's world famous, wrote an Amazon bestseller book, who, as you can see, he learned a lot of terror, look in the back of his shelves, he's packed with all the swarm. And the reason why his shelves are so empty, because everything he finishes, he puts it away in a box. So since he finished Kola Terakula, now he's moving today. And with Messina Snefesh, he said he's going to come on anyway, even though he's in the middle of the movers schlopping the boxes. His wife said she'll finish up the rest so he can come on. So I'll tell your wife, thank you for schlopping those 100-pound boxes. We really appreciate it. And Mitchum, hopefully tonight's share will bring a lot of clarity and be mechazic to thousands and thousands of people that will listen to it. And tonight, the Gematria is 172. Usually we have Rabbi Erner free to come to give a Gematria. But he's unavailable, so Rabbi Rami Zeppel came up with a, with a gematria, and he's going to give us the gematria for what? What is one seventy two tied into tonight's year? One hundred seventy two is the gematria of keva, something which is in a in a permanent fashion. I think four years at this point, coming up on a four year anniversary, it's fair to say that this year is something which is kavu and klal yisrael, and you hear also that it should be just, not just kavu that it happens every Sunday, but it should become something kavu in the hearts and minds and the neshamas of all the listeners, and it should leave a real lasting kviyas dikereshem. On all those who need the inspiration from this year. Amen. Also, good to my friend, Sean Brownstein, who's a Zippel's brother in law, for putting us together. This happened. Mama Sean Thursday, we were putting together the share. He said, Why don't you call my brother in law? And uh, I called his brother in law. The conversation was about 20 seconds. He said, Nasa Vinishma. That's the only thing I remember him saying. And then he hung up the phone. 
Okay, so let's start off first with Menachem. Open it up tonight. What are we doing here tonight? What, what are we doing here Sunday night on the freezing cold, sitting in here, listening about this? What are we trying to accomplish? Very good. Thank you. So welcome, everyone, to another Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem, number 172, Bar Hashem, Flavis and And like we heard, it's Kavias every week, one week at a time. And we see this Yat Hashemaya, and Hashem should help us continue. So in the past, we've had many discussions for those who are listening every Sunday night, different discussions, delicate ones, sensitive topics we've had. But tonight, tonight we're, we are talking about something that many people would say, why? You know, and this is the challenge many times when we're talking about tonight's topic. In the one, in the one hand, we have to talk about it. On the other hand, people have, you know, they complain why, you know, especially if you have young kids, just to know that it's something that we have to talk about. In, in talking about education, talking about talking about it in in the Yiddish Welt and by by us Yidden, the past few years there has been many there has been a lot of change and education and Bar Hashem things have gotten better. However, there is room for improvement. Um, for those who know, and for those who don't, you know, thank Hashem you don't, but many times it could be a problem that you don't, because once you find out, it's too late, and then, you know, if you would have known earlier, if you would have been more educated, things can be much easier. So, bringing up tonight's topic, it's always important to understand that whatever we're going to say is going to press buttons. And uh, for those who have, who have who have gone through the challenge or victimized or whatever it was, I would say it might be a good idea to listen to the recording. Many times when you listen to the discussion itself, the back and forth, you might feel you know different emotions come up, whether you're not being validated, it's not being said the right way, and it's hard to continue listening. So if you listen to the recording, at least when you feel whatever comes up, you can pause, you can walk away, take a drink, come back, and uh, listen to it at a different time. So you can listen to the replay. There are many people out there who, they live in a dark place in their mind. A dark place never opened up to anyone else. And there's something that has happened in the past and they feel the shame and they just can't. And they try to continue. Then there are those who have tried talking to an adult, talking to somebody that can take, can help them and found that the those adults, whoever it is, it could be parents, could be Rabbeim, whoever it is, didn't really take it seriously. And and then the person makes a decision, you know what? They're not going to believe me. I better be quiet and just go on. And such, you know, people like this live in a very painful place, very lonely. And, it, you know, it's not, they say, they say it's hard, that's, you know, that's not the word. They can live in pain, real, real pain. And 
no matter what we're going to say tonight, there's always, there's always two sides to every story. Now, right and wrong, we don't know. You have to find out. How do we find out? There has to be so much koyach, there's so much power, and not always do we feel that we have it. So here we are, Baruch Hashem, tonight, just to talk a little bit of what's going on, how we can make things a little bit easier. And I think the main thing is to give a voice for those who need it, a listening ear, support, and to continue that education for those parents from the when somebody does open up, what to look out for, what to do, what's next. And hopefully it's something that people can reach out. It's not that taboo and get the help that they need in Ritz Hashem with a lot of Siyat Deshmaya. Thank you. the beautiful opening. Okay, so let's jump into tonight's share. Tonight's share, we title it Unveiling Shadows, Shedding Light and Addressing Abuse in the Firm World Through a Comprehensive Perspective, a call to action for awareness, support, to break the silence and safeguard against abuse. We'll start off first with Dr. Gabriel Fagan. Dr. Gabriel Fagan, PhD, LCSW, holds a degree in both forensic psychology and social work. Gabriel holds a designation as a sexual offender treatment specialist, SOTS, and is certified clinical trauma professional, CCTPE. Gabriel is currently the director of Tikkun Counseling, Tikkun Counseling Services for profit organization with offices in Brooklyn, Lakewood, Muncie, Cedarhurst, Queens. Gabriel is a frequent speaker and writer regarding the prevention of sexual abuse, the treatment of male sexual abuse, abuse survivors, and for the evaluation, treatment, and management of male sexual offenders. Gabriel also serves as an expert witness and an evaluator for several Bate Dinam, he sits on the Bezin and secular courts throughout the tri-state area. Finally, Gabriel serves as a supervisor and consulate to several agencies regarding planning and treatment of se sexual abuse survivors. Rabbi Dr. Gabriel, please open it up. All right. Shalom Aleichem. Thank you so much for the honor and privilege of being able to be here with, uh, with everyone tonight. Um, definitely a, a, a huge honor, huge privilege, and uh, much appreciation. So I, I think, you know, probably the first question on everyone's mind is, you know, there, there's uh, certainly, thankfully, been a lot of talk about the impact of sexual abuse on the community. Uh, and <clears throat> I think we've we've all kind of hopefully have heard about the subject, have heard about prevention strategies. But I think, you know, the first and foremost question that we need to ask is, you know, how often does this really happen? Is this really happening, um, you know, with, with a degree of frequency? What are the prevalence rates? So in, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, there was a group of researchers in, in Eretzusa that really were the first to try to uncover rates of abuse uh, in, in the Orthodox community. And, and their study was focused primarily on women. And one of their main findings was that the abuse rates in the Orthodox Jewish community really mimicked that of the general population, which, you know, was very scary to people. You know, we, we have this hope, you know, that, that the way we live and conduct our lives somehow would provide uh, an added degree of protection. Uh, but unfortunately, that that did not pan out to be the case. And and the question, you know, in everyone's mind was, you know, was this just based on one study? Was it just females? Was it the people that, you know, that that they wound up uh, interviewing, even though it was, you know, a, a fantastic study? Um, so in, in uh, 2015, I had the uh, tremendous honor <clears throat> to be able to conduct, uh, as far as I know, the first 
uh, study in the Orthodox Jewish world uh, about the prevalence rates for uh, men who were abused. Uh, and that was in, in 2015. Uh, and over uh, 250 people were uh, interviewed, really cross-section of the Orthodox Jewish world, you know, kind of spanning from Litvish, Litvish to Hasidish to modern and however people would define everything in between. So it, it really was, um, you know, Baruch Hashem, a really nice cross-section. Um, and, and the results of that study really... Uh, supported the notion that our rates of abuse really are the same, uh, essentially, as they are in, in the general population. So specifically when it comes to men, uh, about one quarter or 25% of the sample that, that we surveyed um, <clears throat> acknowledged that they were uh, prematurely abused or introduced to sexuality before they were 18. Now, now this could include somebody showing them inappropriate images um, or attempting to touch them in, in some inappropriate way uh, before, before they were 18 years old. If we just focus on contact offenses, so it was about 20% of the sample, so that's one-fifth. To, to put that in perspective, right, if you have a minion of 10 people, so then they're going to be two men, uh, statistically, who were touched inappropriately uh, before they were 18 by somebody who was three or four years older than they were. And, uh, you know, in furtherance of that, about a little less than three quarters, about 70% of those people that were abused indicated that they had one to two abuses, whereas about 30% were indicating that they had three to five abuses. And obviously, it's, you know, kind of uh, logical to assume, uh, and this did play out indeed in the research, that those who were abused more tend to have much more uh, negative impacts uh, kind of moving forward. And, you know, hopefully we can speak about that as uh, as the conversation proceeds. So this was in 2015. In 2017, uh, there was a clinician based in Brooklyn uh, through Maimonides, David Katzenstein in, in 2017, uh, you know, that kind of made the point that even if we account for underreporting of abuse rates in the Orthodox Jewish community, we still match the 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 national standards. So you know that was kind of like another support. Um, and then in uh, in 2018, uh, Dr. Pelkowitz, as as well as uh, several other uh, key researchers, uh, did a wonderful study, and and this time included both male and female, and they had about uh, 300 and uh, upwards of 350. I forget the exact number, but but there are a lot of people involved in the study. That also supported the notion that our rates of abuse are, are essentially what we're discussing. So specifically when it comes to men, uh, you know, kind of in, in that uh, 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent range um, and and really, you know, saw similar impacts as the 2015 study in terms of uh, it, it, the impacts being primarily that of uh, some sort of sexual dysfunction, uh, <clears throat> increased rates of mental illness or struggles with mental illness, potential addiction, um, and some disturbances when it would come to uh, religion and spirituality. So, you know, that that's really what we're seeing. So if we go back to the question, you know, is, is this truly happening? The, the answer is yes. 
Uh, and, and depending on whether we take that big number, right, which would include uh, inappropriate material, so that's about 25%. And, and if we take that, you know, kind of slightly more condensed number, that would include uh, hands-on offenses. So, you know, we're dealing with about, you know, 20% of, of, of an Orthodox Jewish population. So th those numbers, you know, are, are um, I believe, you know, certainly, certainly quite consistent. Uh, throughout all of these studies, and um, you know, about about a year and a half or two years ago, uh, we did a program for uh, Lakewood Rabbanim, um, and and in that program, you know, before I spoke, I, I asked all the Rabbanim to uh, raise a hand or stand up, you know, if if they personally know uh, somebody in their kahila or somebody that they had been spoken to that um, you know that was sexually abused. I would say upwards of 90% of the people raised their hand and, and stood up as opposed to, you know, a similar kind of program that was done 10 years ago where you would ask somebody, you know, do you personally know somebody and very few hands uh, were raised. And I don't think that's because the the numbers of abused individuals changed. I think it has everything to do uh, with, with the fact that there's increased awareness uh, and increased openness, um, thankfully, in, in terms of people being able to discuss the topic. So, so that's you know that that's really the first thing uh, you know is is does this really happen and and I guess I'll just add one more point and that is there there certainly are specialized populations where we see um, a completely skewed um, number of individuals who who were abused so kids that are struggling uh, to to be on quote unquote the derech you know very high rates of abuse uh, you know kids with uh, very uh, intensive uh, substance abuse issues tend to have more rates of abuse than others. So while the overall rates, you know, are, are uh, as we indicated, you know, in, in some of the specialized populations, we certainly see a, an increase in, in some of those rates. So, you know, that that's with regards to, to prevalence rates. And, and maybe uh, I'll just take a couple of minutes uh, to talk about some prevention strategies. Uh, and then maybe throughout the conversation, we could talk about the, the impacts. Does, does that make sense? Should we do prevention? Go for it. My time. All right. Cool. So, uh, so in terms of prevention strategies, you know, the the first thing that I would say is we really have to know who we're protecting against. Uh, and and in um, you know in the study that that I conducted, the vast majority of people who were abused were actually abused by people who they knew and probably knew well. So we we tend to have you know this notion, and it certainly was you know promoted in the eighties and nineties of uh, you know stranger danger. You know, don't take the candy from from you know the creepy guy who's rolling down the window, which is certainly true. But but the the vast majority of cases, upwards of about eighty percent of of cases of people who are abused, typically uh, you know with with high numbers are are individuals that that person knew. Uh, you know, kind of. Up there is a, a older friend of the family, um, you know. So, so if you have, you know, let's say a, a boy who's nine, and you know, there's a 14, 15 year old boy in the community, and they're playing basketball or something like that. So, you know, that would be a, a friend in the community, something that they knew, some somebody that they knew, uh, you know, friend of a parent, that kind of thing. Uh, and and the other huge demographic when it comes to prevalent, when it, when it comes to you know, who are we kind of protecting against? is uh i would say the largest demographic that that comes in aside from uh you know the community member or the friend that 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 uh, abused child uh knew is um is is an older teenage brother abusing a younger sister 
So usually that will happen, you know, at, at some point in, in early adolescence, you know, you have the 13, 14, 15, 16 year old boy who's, uh, you know, touching the uh, six, seven, eight, nine year old uh, sister. So, you know, those those are some of, you know, the important demographics. So when it comes to, to prevention strategies, right, we, we kind of have to know who, uh, you know, who we're protecting against. And in that way, you know, any any program that's really promoting this stranger danger really is only covering about 20 percent, um, you know, and, and there's been a push in, in the most recent safety books and, and lectures to to really highlight this point that the, those uncomfortable feelings and, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, statistically are going to be coming from uh, from people that that this uh, child unfortunately knows. So including that in our prevention programs, uh, you know, is is really key. And, you know, in, in the safety book, uh, you, you know, that hopefully every household, uh, you know, that every household hands has uh, put out by ArtScroll, uh, let's stay safe, uh, you know, re really tries to hone in on this point that that it really might be somebody that's that's very known to the child. Uh, the the other uh, prevention piece that I would put in there is, uh, you know, very often parents and and prevention programs uh, will will talk about uncomfortable touch or unwanted touch or scary touch. In 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 our study, the the vast majority of uh, children who report or individuals who were children at the time who reported abuse did not feel that it was scary or wanted or unwanted at the time. They they obviously were highly confused, but it might have been a way to uh, get attention from an older person. Uh, certainly there might be mixed feelings associated with what happened, but uh, you know, often those those scary words of you know unwanted touch and inappropriate touch actually doesn't really match the experience of of many, many victims. Um the, the third prevention strategy that I would say is we have to model open and honest communication. If we're not having the conversation with our children and having it early on, uh, you know, bath time, and then when they go on the bus, and then when they're going to camp, and then when they're going off to yeshiva dorm or whatever it is, we, we have to model that open and honest communication. If we're not the ones having that conversation, uh, you know, with a child, then, you know, who is, and, and we've really missed an opportunity. Uh, in that way, prevention is not an event. Uh, it's 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 a process, right? And and it's going to be a process along uh, the developmental uh, chain of of this child. Uh, the other prevention strategy is is we have to learn how to love our kids. Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan. I don't get any kickback from this, but I'm a huge fan of of the five love languages by Gary Chapman. Um, if we don't know the particular uh, love method that each uh, child really you know speaks to them it's going to be very very hard to provide that child with what they need and children that aren't provided with the type of love that they need we can be the most loving in our minds we can be the most uh, you know loving parents around if it's not the type of love that a child wants it makes them more susceptible uh, to to future uh, to future abuse by by somebody in their life um <clears throat> The the other thing that you know we we really want to to speak about is that kids need to have multiple positive relationships. So they need to obviously have great relationships with parents, with Rebeim, Moras, grandparents, uh, being part of you know some sort of team. The the more healthy adult relationships that do take place, they'll be able to contrast those healthy relationships um, with something that that might be uh, you know inappropriate uh, to them. Um, 
the the other you know maybe final point uh you know that i would say is as parents we certainly need to look at our parenting style you know and ask is our parenting style matching what it is that a particular uh child needs are we emotionally available uh to to our kids are we giving them enough space are we giving them too much space which um you know perhaps i'll just say one more thing uh and and that is in 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 all of our children we need to promote resilience Right? We need to make sure that we're giving them the tools in order to handle life adversity. If we handicap our children by not allowing them to solve problems and not deal with life adversity, they're not going to be able to turn to us and they don't develop that those resiliency skills that if something does happen in their life, they'll they'll be better off. So we don't want to handicap them in, in the way of you know always solving their problems, but we also don't want to be in, in the other uh, you know, extreme of, you know, kind of, I don't know, you deal with it. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not helping you in, in any sort of way, shape or form. So, uh, you know, th those resiliency skills wind up being a really important uh, key component, um, you know, of of some of these prevention techniques. So I'll stop here. Dr. Gabriel, really appreciate it. Okay, let's jump to Remy Zippel. Remy Zippel was born in Toronto, Canada and moved to Salt Lake, Salt Lake City with his parents in July of 92. He attended a Jewish high school in Chicago and attended rabbinical college in London, England. Avrami participated in Jewish outreach and humanitarian missions in Denmark, Germany, France, Italy, Wales, and numerous cities throughout the U.S. He was a shliach. He was ordained by the rabbinical college of America of Morristown, New Jersey, with the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Lau, in December of 2013. He married Shana, Shana in January of 2014, and together they moved to Utah a year later. They created the Jewish uh, Young Jewish Professionals Utah. They are proud parents of three adorable little boys. In February of 2019, Avrami publicly came forward about his decade of sexual abuse he had encountered at the hands of a childhood caretaker. He is believed to be the first Orthodox rabbi to publicly speak out about sexual abuse in the past. Since then, Avrami has taken leadership roles in combating sexual abuse in religious communities around the world and advocating for survivors. Avrami series Avrami serves in his community as chair of Utah Council of Victims a crime, a legislative, a legislative appointed committee. He's acclaimed memoir, Not What I Expected, was released in May 2023. You can buy it on Amazon and was quickly recognized as an Amazon bestseller book. He's a sought-after author, lecturer, mentor in communities around the world. Rabbi Remel, thank you for coming last second. Open it up. Shkoyach, Shkoyach, Coach Menachem, Dr. Fagan. Uh, I was... Uh... It's always in, in these sorts of formats. It's always a, a mile. I feel like to go second. So Shkayak, Dr. Fagan, for being brave enough to go first. I was uh, I was jotting down a few notes as Dr. Fagan was speaking, um, and I, I want to touch back on a few things that Dr. Fagan said because I think that having the ability to take some of the clinical ideas and the and the scientific realities that Dr. Fagan referenced and 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 put them in, into a first person reality is a powerful tool for a lot of us as we think about some of the ideas that Dr. Fagan mentioned. So. Uh, one area where I'm going to start is Dr. Fagan mentioned that in his study and in other studies that had been done about uh, the survivors of child sexual abuse in the from community, which lines up with the data we know about uh, survivors uh, across the spectrum of humanity, many of the children that endured those sorts of experiences uh, suffered with mental illness, uh, specifically within the from community. They dealt with a number of religious-based issues. You know, they, they struggled with their faith uh, and, and a number of other positive life experiences. Um, I think when we hear that idea, we're like, oh, wow, they, you know, who can imagine these kids, you know, these Tzedrachen and Neshamas, I don't even know what they look like, you know, they're, they're disoriented and disenfranchised and this, this and this, that and all the, you know, who knows where they are in life. 
And I, I want to take the opportunity to color that context. Uh, that's me. Um, you know, by all accounts, from a clinical perspective, I struggle with mental illness. Uh, I definitely have had my own fair share of, of issues with religion and faith, Bukhalki Aigavna. And um, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've been through a journey in life and, and yet here I am tonight. And may, maybe what I'm going to share with you tonight is only going to reinforce the reality that I struggle with mental illness. Maybe it'll challenge that notion for you. But I, I think it'll help put a face to a lot of these ideas because the, the, the data that Dr. Fagan shares is absolutely correct. It's empirically correct. And I think that when we think about people who are struggling with these issues, each and every one of us goes to a place in our own minds where we envision and we draw a picture of what people who deal with those sorts of issues look like. And I want to challenge some of those notions. I want to challenge some of those impressions. I want to challenge some of those different pictures that we might be drawing to ourselves and, and perhaps encourage each and every one of us to think about this issue a little bit differently. Um, just for the sake of, I'm, I'm going to say this once at the beginning, um, you know, my story is, is a little bit of a long one and, I, and that tonight is not the format to share all of it in its entirety. And I'm going to kind of jump around to share the more pertinent points that pertain specifically to this conversation. I will just say, for those that are interested in, in learning more, as Zerbasha mentioned, um, it, it is documented and chronicled at this time. You could buy my, my book on Amazon uh, at Eichler's in, um, in Barra Park, uh, at, Judea, at Judaica World in Crown Heights, and a number of other locations. Also, I, I share very openly about this journey online. You can find me across the spectrum of social media platforms at Utah Rabbi. Uh, and so I, I, I don't want to feel bad for sharing only nuggets of the story. If you're interested in learning more, that opportunity is definitely available and it's out there. And, uh, and should that be the direction that you choose to go down, by all means. Um, I was raised in Salt Lake City. I'm a second generation shliach here in Utah. My parents started the Beis Chabad in uh, the summer of 1992. Interesting nugget of Chabad knowledge. The Lubavitcher Rebbe suffered a stroke after which he did not speak again in March of 1992. It was a Monday afternoon. The day before, the Rebbe was giving out dollars, as the Rebbe did every Sunday for close to six years. And my father was able to go buy dollars by the Lubavitcher Rebbe about 15 minutes before dollars wrapped up Sunday evening around 6.55 p.m. to receive a bracha to go to Salt Lake City and, and investigate if it was a place that was, you know, ready for a shliach. And the next day, the Rebbe had a stroke and never spoke again. At this point, there's no conclusive data if it was the last shliach that got a bracha verbally, but definitely uh, closer, to the, closer to the end. Um, my parents came out here, you know, back in the day, Salt Lake City was was considered the most the most forlorn Chabad destination that existed. Now we're like very mainstream when you have Shluchim and God knows where and uh, continents and, and in small communities in Salt Lake City is now more with the program. And one of the early Mesut's Nefeshim that my, my parents signed up for, which by extension meant we all signed up for in the family, was the lack of a Chinuch infrastructure. There was no Cheder, there was no day school, there was no, there was nothing uh, when my parents moved here, which when my parents signed up for a lifestyle of Shluchis, meant they were committing to homeschooling. Now Baruch Hashem Lubavitch has all sorts of interesting ideas and inventions and online schools, et cetera, et cetera. But back in the day, it was, it was hardcore homeschool, homeschool. And Dr. Fagan mentioned the idea of, 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 of children in a healthy dynamic having multiple um, healthy adult presences in their life. Uh, that was something we were deprived of. I think when we think about the, the challenges that Shluchim face going out in the field to small communities, it's important to remember that some of those challenges can be more ruchniistic. They don't have chalav Yisrael milk and they have to drive four hours to go to a mikveh. And, and a lot of them can be, can be understood in the realm of healthy child development. You're raising your children in a, in a dynamic where they don't have a school and they can't participate in other activities with other kids and they're robbed, in a certain sense, of healthy adult presences in their lives. Um, I was homeschooled at home. 
wasn't going to school. I wasn't interacting with teachers and rebbies and moras, as was advised by the good doctor. Uh, when I was eight, my part, my Baruch Hashem, I, we were a lot of kids in the family. My parents were teaching us, and so that took a large part of their day. And so when I was eight years old, my parents hired a caregiver, an extra set of hands at the house, a babysitter, a nanny, whatever you want to call it. They found someone who came very, very highly recommended, Baruch Hashem. And very quickly, she became part of our family. She was in our house every day, nine to five. She was part of the fabric of the family environment. About a year after she started working for us, just after I turned eight, our family's caregiver began to sexually abuse me. Um, it, I couldn't stop it. Let me put that out there. I didn't have the wherewithal to stop what was going on. On a very basic level, like many eight-year-old children, back especially in my generation, I... I had no context for what was going on. I had no vocabulary for what was going on. I had no perception of what was going on. It was unclear to me if what was going on to me was something which I was participating in, how much guilt I was supposed to feel for what was happening. It, it definitely felt very, very wrong. It felt very non sneeze It felt very inappropriate. But was it my fault or was it not my fault? Or how much fault was it? There was definitely some of it was my fault, for sure, at least a little bit. And, and because it's a confusing topic and you're all of eight years old, and this is not something which was talked about in my house as a child, I didn't have the ability to object or to make it stop or to say something to somebody or to complain, etc. And so it went on. It would go on for a very, very long time. Um, like many Chabad kids, I left home right after Bar Mitzvah to go get a, a more of a full-time chinuch in a larger environment. I went to, to a cheder in New Jersey. After that, I went to a Mesifta and a Beis Medrash. I was still coming home multiple times a year for Yavim Tevim and Simchas, etc. And it would continue. It would continue, and I would, whenever, whenever I would come home. It went on for a very, very long time. At some point, Baruch Hashem, me and my siblings grew up. Most of us were learning out of the house, and there wasn't the same need for the full-time care at home. My parents and the family caregiver parted ways on the very best of terms to move on. Nobody knew anything at that point. And there were promises to stay in touch and we'll see you around at family simchas, et cetera, et cetera. And on the day that she drove away from our house the last time, I promised myself that if I had managed to keep it quiet up until that moment, while it was an ongoing reality in the present, as it shifted into the past, making sure that nobody would ever find out about it was going to be much, much, much easier. If while it was ongoing, I was I managed to keep it quiet, then while it was not going to be ongoing anymore, I mean, it's Hashem. Then I wouldn't have to do it. Then it would be it would be easy peasy. And so from that day forward, I promised myself this was going to be something I would take with me to the grave. No one would know. No one could know. O on a very basic level, I think there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding as to why children, whether they're children in the present moment or as they morph into adults, why they keep this secret. Who are they protecting? What have they been threatened with? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I think it's important to point out that in most instances, and Dr. Fagan mentioned the the data that we know of how often a child that's going through this is happening at the hands of a loved one. This is not, this is not happening to him at the hands of the scary person in the park who's giving out candy on the playground. This is happening at the hands of someone who's very much part of their life. Most of the time, a child stays quiet out of a sense of self-preservation. They're not out there to protect anybody else. They're not out there because someone's put a gun to their head or threatened them with who knows what they threatened them with. They're doing it because they don't want to get themselves in trouble. And that was very much my reality. Why, why would any, who would I tell? Who would I tell? And, and who knows what they would do with that information? It was better off for everybody. Most importantly, it was better off for myself if not a single living soul knew about it. 
and that was that was the pledge that I made to myself that uh, that uh, it was uh, it was going to stay quiet. Um, I, I I finished my learning. I uh, I got married. Um, you know, in my mind, uh, as a as a Lubavitcher Bachar of twenty two. I, I dated young, the Fierach in my grade. I got married early. Um, and for me, getting married and having a, a healthy sexual relationship was going to be the way to put this out of my mind. It was going, you know, I think a lot of us grow up thinking that marriage is, is just a magical potion and a, and a cure to anything that, that bothers us in life. And certainly in my circumstances, we're going to be the case. Baruch Hashem. I'm, I'm zeichet to have an incredible marriage and maybe to put an incredible person in my life. And yet, marriage is not a, a magical cure or a potion to heal any sort of childhood trauma. And as many trauma survivors know, as you get married and you begin to have an intimate relationship of your own, the issues that were buried for such a long time really begin to crop up in earnest. And it was almost exactly eight years ago, in uh, February of 2016, my wife and I just had our first child, that things were really uh, spiraling out of control for me. Um, I, I was I was a shell of myself. I was not functioning on, on, a, on a regular level. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was I was not in a good spot. And at the urging of my parents, who I now work for, my wife, I I was told to go talk to somebody just a one time. Go just you know unload, get things off your chest. I'm sure Dr. Fagan has had a, a number of clients who came into his office just one time, just just here once, just give me 45 minutes of your time so I can just spit it out and then I'm never going to have to come back. And I, it, it was such a session that I signed up to just the one time. Um, the therapist was the first living being that I, that I uttered the fateful words to. I think I was sexually abused as a kid. I'm not sure if it really like, means anything nowadays. And, and off life went. Uh, you know, it went to years and years of therapy. Ultimately, it led to reporting the criminal justice system. The big, the big domino to fall for me was making the decision whether to come out publicly about it. As it pertains specifically to reporting from a criminal justice perspective, there was definitely an opportunity and a possibility to be able to report in an anonymous fashion, uh, at least in the beginning of the process, which was definitely seemed like a much safer bet for me. And at some point, I really began to grapple with the idea of coming out publicly, say it's publicly in the from community. In here at, in, in Utah, uh, living in Salt Lake City, most of the people that I work with in the local community uh, if they knew I was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I don't think they would change their opinion much of me. But in the firm community, it wasn't something I wanted anybody to know about. Um, you know, even I would say even five years ago, six years ago, when I was making the decision to come forward, things were very different back then. I think that there has been a tremendous change uh, over the past number of years. And this was something I struggled with. I, you know, I, I think to put it in the in the uh, most basic of terms, I didn't know a single person in the firm community that looked like me that associated themselves with this issue. Not a soul, not a single one. And what, what, was, you know, what would I be doing to myself by coming out? What sort of isolation would I be subjecting myself to if, if I came out? And, and you know, as I shared with my therapist for, for at great length before I came out, I said, you know, if I, if I do this, if I come out publicly, I could accomplish the greatest things in my lifetime Begashmis, Baruchnis, or otherwise. For all eternity in the Frum community, I will be Tzipo, the guy who was sexually abused. Doesn't matter what I do with my life. I remember giving him the analogy that I'll cure cancer one day and, and, and I'll still be walking Grand Heights in the bakery. And somebody like, ah, you're the guy who was abused, right? And and that that seemed daunting. I mean, raise your hand if you want to sign up for such a for, for such a for such a lifestyle. 
But Poyo Mamash had decided to come out, you know, what we can get into the chizuk element of it uh, a little bit later, you know, what really kind of pushed me over the edge to do it. It was more of a ruchnistic decision more than anything else. And as I often tell people, um, what I had predicted beforehand was actually spot on. It's exactly what happened. Uh, I don't know what the rest of my life will bring, but for the past five years, without interruption and likely long into the future, specifically within the firm community, that's my calling. It's who I am. I'm the guy who was sexually abused. What's remarkable to me is the community's reaction to the news didn't change at all. How I was ready to receive the community's reaction changed completely. And I personally came to a spot where if the firm community is going to know me for that, Ashrei Chelti. Cool. Uh, that, that's what I signed up for. That's going to be my life. I'm not embarrassed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not running from that anymore. If, if that's going to be my, I hate to use the term legacy, but if that's going to be my calling card, what am I going to do? It's going to be my calling card. I didn't sign up for this life. I didn't choose the way it was going to break down. The rabbinical didn't put me in this position. And, uh, and, and, and here we are. It's, it is what it is. Um, and, and that's, you know, in, in a nutshell, kind of where life has gone over the past number of years, uh, almost five years at this point. Um, a large part of those years was was dedicated to the, the culmination of the criminal justice system and we kind of took that to the very, very end. Baruch Hashem, um, yeah, I wrote a book. I, I, I'm excited to work in this space quite a bit nowadays, which is an incredible, incredible bracha. It's an incredible gift. And, and it's interesting. It's It's been five years now out in the space and... I think early on there's a there's a survivor here in town, someone who's not Jewish, who we were once, you know, hypothesizing. And, and and this was someone who was a lot further down the line than I was and had accomplished a lot more in their life than I had. And I asked her, or I said, you know, if you could do it over, if you could do the whole thing over from the very beginning, get a hard reset, unplug the system, plug it back in, and get an entirely fresh lease on life. And you would have to make the choice whether life life would turn out the way it did or you would have a, a normal childhood, what would you choose? And she said, without a doubt, I would, I, I, would, I would choose the way it all went down. No question. And I remember thinking when she said that to me years ago, like, that's bizarre. You know, we all heal and we all make strides in our own life. And good, Baruch Hashem, we all do the work. But like, what would I give for a normal childhood? And, and the truth is that the years have gone along. I think about that. What would I give for a normal childhood? You know, there, there are scars and there's baggage that you will carry with you forever, that there are days when you wish it would all just go away. But it's also, it, it, it's put me in a position to, to experience things in a way that is an incredible gift. It's given the opportunities that are an incredible gift from the Rebbein Shalalam. And you know, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm all the way there yeah, to, to, to be able to make that decision, if I could do it all over again and have that reset, well, which path would I choose? But I think you see a lot of the Yad Hashem, you see a lot of the Siyat Hashem, you see how every person is put into a specific situation to, to cope with and to deal with it with their own Kachas Momayla. And, and here we are tonight having this conversation, seeing how far this conversation could go, seeing how much we can uncover and take out of the shadows. And uh, I'm excited to hear what the Elam has in store. Okay. You have the Wow. Invisible. It's powerful stuff. Okay. We're going to take a poll over here. It's a three-question poll, and then we're going to jump into questions again. Anybody wants to ask a live question? You have Dr. Fagan over here. You have Rabbi Zippel. So, Chaperine, let's let's take, you know, no questions off the table. Okay, three-question poll. Everybody answer your opinion. It's anonymous. We just want to see where the item is holding. Three questions. In your opinion, to what extent is sexual abuse a problem in the firm world? Three options. Not a, not a significant problem. 
B, somewhat of a problem, or D, I'm sorry, <laughs> I messed up. Okay, the last one is a large problem, okay? So delete what it says over there. The last one's a large problem. It's both said they both say somewhat of a problem. Okay, second question. Are there typical effects that sexual abuse has on children later on in their life? Three options. Some people experience effects while others do not. Most individuals who are abused as children may replay those same experience later on in life. Three, it could pose a challenge and make achieving a strong marriage bond and closeness is very difficult. Again, there's no right answer, but what's your opinion if you could choose one? Number three, in your opinion, do you believe that in the firm world, we are becoming more aware of handling issues? The polls. the polls went away. Okay. Everybody says disappear. So I'm going to restart it. Hold on one second. Okay. Everybody sees them now? Nah, can we see them? Okay. People said they couldn't see them. Let's start again. In your opinion, to what extent is sexual abuse a problem in the firm world? Three options. Not a significant problem. Number two is somewhat of a problem. The third one is, is supposed to be a very large problem. Okay. Sex, second question. Are there typical effects that sexual abuse has on children later in the life? Three options. Some people experience effects while others do not. B, some most individuals who are abused as children may replay these experiences later out in life. Or C, it, pose, it can pose a challenge or make achieving a strong marriage bond very difficult. The third question. In your opinion, do you believe that in the firm world we are becoming more aware of handling these issues related to abuse better than the past 30 years? Three options. Excellent. We're doing very well within the issue as best as can be done. Option two, moderately, moderately well. There's room for improvement. Or C, no, the awareness and handling have remained unchanged over the past 30 years. Those are the three questions. Everybody votes. And then we'll get into the questions. We have a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're gonna, after we do the poll, we're going to start with a live question first. Okay, we're going to end the poll in a minute. Okay, now we're going to share the poll. Now everybody can see the results. Okay, in your opinion, to what extent is sexual abuse a problem in the firm world? Dr. Fagan, Rabbi Zippel, 2% of people feel it's not a significant problem. Um, I don't know, they're both 100% because they're both the same answer. So I guess a lot of people feel somewhat of a problem or definitely a large problem. So definitely we have a problem going on. I don't know how big it is. We'll figure that out next year. <laughs> Number two, are, there tip are the typical effects of that sexual abuse has on children later on in their life? Seven percent of people only only seven percent only seven percent of people feel some people experiences effects while others don't. Twenty one percent of the people feel that most people that were molested their children will relive those experiences again and do them to other people. Seventy two percent says it poses a challenge to make achieving a strong bond in marriage and closeness very difficult. Does anybody want to comment on this, Doctor Gabriel? Rabbi Zippel, you want to say anything? I lost the ICs in front of me. How can I pull them back up? Um... I'll read it to you. Sorry, no. Are there typical effects that sexual abuse has on children later on in life? Um, I mean, the, the the two most popular choices sound sound somewhat similar to me. Uh, I I would be uh, Dr. Fagan can comment on this clinically. I would be Shaila the first option out of hand. Uh, I, I don't believe there there are people who do not experience effects at any point later on in life. I I yet to meet yet to meet that person. Um, maybe there is. Um, whether it's same experiences and and make a, a strong marriage bond very difficult, yeah, I think the answer is probably that the 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 data probably reflects a reality somewhere in between those two choices. Dr. Fagi, what do you say about that? But uh, which which question? I mean, each each one could be. Well, a well, we, we all feel there's no question. We all feel definitely it's definitely a somewhat of an issue or a larger issue in the firm community. But like you said, it's it's probably on par with with the whole world is holding, which is a big issue. 
Let's go into the second question. The typical effects that sexual abuse can have on children later in life. 21% of the people feel that, 7% of the people feel like there are people that go through it and that it really doesn't affect them. And then there's 21% of the people feel that that these people will sort of replay those things later on in life. It's always the fear. And most people feel the biggest problem that's going to happen is that it's really going to pose a, a, a tremendous challenge in their marriage. Okay, so I mean, we we can certainly speak in in general that the um, the clinical impacts, you know, potentially of of sexual abuse include depression and suicidality, PTSD, the development of ADHD. Even though we might not have seen it uh, before the abuse took place, the the symptom profile can be the same. Uh, potential substance abuse uh, problems, sexual addiction issues poor academic performance, religious issues, marital difficulties. So un unfortunately, you know, the, the list is, is, uh, quite, quite long. The, the question, let's, let's, let's jump to the third question. In your opinion, do you believe that in the firm world, we're becoming more aware of handling issues related to abuse over the past 30, better than the past 30 years. 9% of people feel excellent. We're doing a great, we're doing very well with this issue as best as can be done. Most people here, 86% of people feel moderately well, that we're definitely doing well but there's room for improvement and 5% of people feel no, we're exactly the same place as we were 30 years ago. What's uh, I want to hear both of your opinions on that. Dr. Fagan. Okay, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there's no question that we're doing worlds better, but there, there are eight primary reasons that victims won't share or haven't shared what it is that happened to them. And, and those things are going to uh, by and large be true no matter how much uh, prevention and how much talking will will actually do. So, you know, while we certainly need to do all of our prevention programs and, you know, we need to be doing these conversations and we need to be doing a lot more of them, that there's no question that, uh, you know, places are doing them and there have been symposiums and parent meetings and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing well, there's a lot more to do, but, but there are certain realities that take place during the abuse process that, that are always going to keep uh, children and teens, young adults from, from sharing that abuse typically till much later on in life. Okay. Let's go to the first live question. You're on. Thank you. Um, I just, uh, you mentioned earlier already about, um, like bathtub conversations and telling your children, you know, nobody should be touching you in certain areas of your body. And I wanted to know how you like speak about it specifically when you have to qualify it by like, unless it's a doctor and you have a rash or unless it's me and I'm wiping you or a Mora and they're wiping you in the bathroom. Um, so I feel like it's, it's sometimes hard to say like you have a right to your body and nobody should be touching you in this areas, but there are times that they should. Um, and I feel like you can like then say like, Oh, but if somebody else is saying, but I also should, like, how do you, how do you express that? So they understand it at right, right now, my daughter's about to turn five. So a pretty young age. So first of all, happy upcoming birthday. Um, second of all, you do Thank it you. Exactly, exactly the way you said it, you know, kids, kids will understand that there's a rule and there are exceptions to a rule, it, you know, especially in our religion, right. Where, where there, there are constantly rules and constantly going to be exceptions to, to all of those rules. And, and that's what they spend, you know, the vast majority of their time in school doing. 
So it, it's perfectly acceptable and kids will totally get it if you say, right, nobody can touch you in these areas except for the following scenarios. That that doesn't mean it's a one-time, you know, kind of thing. There's obviously always going to be follow-up. But 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 kids, even young kids, are are perfectly capable of understanding this this notion that you can't cross the street unless you look both ways. At a certain age, you're able to do it. You can do this, but you can't do that. Some people are able to do it, some people not. That that's you know, that that's a reality of 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 the world and and they'll get it. It's you don't have to worry about it. I, I wanna I, I totally agree with Dr. Fagan. I wanna add one quicker to that. I think that especially, you know, I, I've got my oldest is eight and a half. So I, I remember exactly where you are having a five-year-old. And as my, as my kids got a little older, I, I think there is an overarching idea to be expressed. And that is that beyond the specifics, um, it's important to convey to our children that no one should ever put you in a situation where they make you uncomfortable. That's the cloud. And the, the pratim are, you know, uh, whether it's a, a touch or, or exposure or whatever the case is. And so I think that as our kids grow up, putting them in a situation, empowering them to feel that, God forbid, should there ever be any sort of dynamic where an adult makes you feel uncomfortable, you come to us, you speak to us, you bring it up, there's going to be love and acceptance and non, non-judgmentalism. It gives us the abilities to parse through those various yaitzim and aklals in a case-by-case fashion. So if your child comes to you and says, hey, today... I had to go to that and the nurse, you know, had to check me, et cetera. You could say, oh, well, she's a nurse. You know, how did it go? It went this and this way. Okay, that's say If they go to summer camp and they say, yeah, my counselor told me that as part of a game we're playing, they have to they have to check me. You then have the opportunity to, to explain how that's not a Yates in the club. But I think that providing that context that adults should not make you feel uncomfortable, period, full stop, creates the, the environment to provide those various exceptions. Thank you. So I just, just to clarify, thanks. Um, it sounds like you're saying that if I'm doing bath time, I should give the specific examples, but say them discreetly. So as opposed to saying someone like a Mora, I should say when your Mora wipes you so that they know that it's those specific examples and then they can extrapolate or come to me with other things if they come up. I would Thank agree you. with that wholeheartedly because and I, I, don't want, I want to comment on that specific example. I think that giving carte blanche to anybody who's a teacher um, my, is a situation which could be manipulated down the road. Uh, any Mora, any Rebbe. I think that your Mora this year, right here, right now, when, you know, your, your daughter's young enough that she still needs to be taken care of in class in that capacity, that's a very narrow exception. Creating a very broad exception has the opportunity for it to get taken a little bit out of context. Great, thank you. Let's, let's jump to the next live question. You're on. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, you. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, having this platform. Um, actually, Ashkaka, as I try to buy uh, Avramir book today, um, they actually did not have it in the store I went to. So I guess it's the chart that I should be on tonight. Tell, um, tell them to reorder. <laughs> it's Bar- Barnes and Noble. So. <sighs> Didn't sell it. My question is for both of you on here. I actually both, I listened to an interview with Dr. Zippel, Dr. Fagan and you, Avrami, um, on Living L'Chaim about a year and a half ago, got amazing, amazing information, amazing chizik from actually a line, Avrami, you said that you're, uh, I think, 16 years in this and you got eight years to go, so you give yourself time. I live with that every day. Um, you know, can't rush yourself and however much time you spent in the places you were, that's how much time minimum you have to get out. Uh, so my question is like this. Um, 
I am probably one of the youngest listeners tonight. I am in a yeshiva in a base medrash, and I am actually a child of a, a uh, parent of mine was abused and abused someone as a kid. And as obviously life did not work out as planned, and I, you know, they didn't have the ability to uh, handle it. And a lot of things got messed up in life. And I'm a child and have lived my own pain and own um, journey. My question is what, in a sense, maybe of practical guidance, um, you know, I'm in therapy. I don't have that space, but from, from the doctor, I guess, what practically advice could you give to kids that we don't have parents to talk to us about? We don't have that space. Um, and also maybe some chizik from you over on me and just how do we live through this? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, I, I think everybody wishes you a tremendous bracha and hatzlacha on your journey. Uh, there, there really is a, a three-part journey uh, to, you know, to any victim, whether it was direct or indirect, um, where people really move. The, the goal of therapy ultimately is, is to move somebody from being a victim to being a survivor to being a thriver. And that, that stage of victimhood, we need to establish safety, which really, in essence, is, is what you're talking about, right? Who, who is it safe to speak to? As, as a survivor, the, the step really is what, what can I do to cope? What can I do to cope today? What can I you know, do to cope, hopefully moving beyond today, the week, the month, the year? To, to be a thriver means how do I find meaning in what it is that happened? And, and not everybody has to get to that stage. And, and frankly, not everybody does get to that stage. But certainly we need to move people from uh, victim to, to survivor. So when it comes to, to this notion of safety, right, uh, and, and, and who do I have to be able to be open to, that's, that's really where the, the communal idea of, of prevention takes place. Right? The more we can sensitize Rebbeim, Russia Yeshiva, uh, you know, whether there's a manal, whether there's a mashkiach or whatever it is to, to some of the issues that guys might be going through, you know, th that's when we know we've done a good job is that if, if somebody for whatever reason can't go to a parent, either they're not available, they don't feel comfortable, whatever it is, ha having other positive um, parental type units in in their life becomes you know extraordinarily important now now obviously right the the other side of that the scary side of that is you know could somebody potentially take you know take advantage of that that obviously needs to be looked at very very carefully but being able to for, for us as a community to develop those people outside of therapy who you can go to for support and encouragement uh you know winds up being uh you know extraordinarily important uh, in, in the world of, of female victims, it's much more common to have female support groups. Uh, in, in the world of, uh, you know, male victimization, uh, it's it's less so, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. Um, you, you know, I, I would say about 10 years ago, uh, you know, at this point, uh, you know, I ran a, a, a male victim group for about a year and a half. Extremely powerful extremely powerful uh, therapeutic impact for, you know, other people to be sitting in a room with with people who might not necessarily have the same story, but a lot of the same dynamics and, and really working through them. So, you know, I, I would definitely encourage you to, to, to find that trusted person or people, uh, you know, to, to be able to share it, obviously, in a safe way. Um, you know, and, and there might be some external resources in addition to therapy that, um, you know, probably could be helpful as well. 
I, I would I want to say a few things. Um, yeah, I've learned very early on in this in this process that um, there are people that can never begin to comprehend what I went through, and I think for the same price, there's a lot of people who have got, who go through things that I can't begin to comprehend. But that's been like for you, and so for the person you know to, to the to the to the person who's asking about having gone through this at the hands of a parent and not having the ability to have that parent dynamic, I, I've got no wise words. I've got I've got no smart tarots to tell you this i can't imagine what that's like I, I can't i can't begin to imagine what that's like and i commiserate with you to the extent that i can and and, and, I, and i and i and i try to be empathetic to the extent that i can because i cannot begin to imagine what that's like it does sound from the way you're describing it that you have some healthy adults in your life you know some way or another you got to therapy and there's a mental health professional that's trusted in your life and it sounds like you have a good sort of support system in yeshiva from the way you're briefly describing it but i cannot begin to fathom what that's like and 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 i and i think it's important that you hold space for yourself that what you're going through is is remarkable in that sense and and, and the fact that you have gotten to where you have gotten today and you are in therapy and you are coping with it and and, and you're being mishtadl to be on a call like this and you want to engage and you want to ask and you want to play an, an engaged part in your healing journey speaks to the incredible depth of of, of the work that you're putting in to, that, that most of us common mortals can't begin to understand. So, yeah, to you. Uh, I, I'd say w w within the realm of chizuk, um, you know, for me, I, and I briefly touched on this earlier, you know, there was a real, there was a real shvira for me in the sense of finding, finding a way that could be congruent with imuna that that would allow me to be at peace with what happened um you, you know there, there there's uh, when i was in yeshiva my grandfather was diagnosed with a very very severe illness and he was given a very very short time to live so we spent the first four months post his diagnosis you know hopping around every mitzvah and schus and caver and god knows what you know that he was going to have a, a miraculous recovery after about four months, it seemed quite apparent that wasn't going to happen. So then we, 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 we shifted focus, which is, okay, he's had a great run. You know, th this, is, this is what it is. The Abister takes some people at a time that we might think is before their time. Let's spend more time with him. Let's enjoy the time we have left. Let's realize this is also the Yad Hashem. The, instead of trying to shove miracles on the poor man, the reality that he's in is also the Yad Hashem, and let's try to see that. I think for me, I spent a very long time believing that the Ibster wanted me as far away from the situation as possible. You know, what I had been engaged in was so and and it was gross and it was disgusting. And, and I needed to carve out a life for myself somewhere else. And I think for me, healing from a clinical perspective, but also from a Ruchnistic perspective, was coming to the frame of mind to realize that no, the, the life the Ibster wanted for me looks exactly the way it does. This is also the Yad Hashem. Now, why is the Yad Hashem required that I have to go through what I went through for the Ibister to create his perfect world the way he wants it to look? I, I, have, no, I have no answer to that question. And if I did, I would run for his job. I'd, I'd, I'd try to get him out of a job because I hear it pays really well to be the Rebbein Shalev. But in the meantime, I can't understand what he's trying to do. And I don't know why he made my life look the way it did. But he did. But he did. And there's a purpose in that. And there's a beauty in that. And there's a kavana in that. And there's something there for it. And, and I, I try to wake up every morning trying to find out what that is. We, for just for a second, if we can discuss first of all, how how much time did it take for you to get to that place? That's number one. And I just want to talk for a minute how it has an effect on our you, you know, Amun and Batochen being angry at Hashem. 
I want I want to want to touch on both both of those questions for a second, and it's it's huge. that you asked when you did because about thirty seconds before you did that, I just got a, a DM in the chats. What made you decide to stay from? Which is a question I love. I love that question because it takes Yiddishkeit and it makes it sound like a mail order subscription that Frum is, you know, Frum is like a credit card benefit and I signed up for it and I get it for, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years. And B'meshach, that time period, I'm locked in to being Frum and I don't know, I'm stuck. I'm Frum because a number of years I signed up for the thing and now I can't get myself out of it and I can't hit unsubscribe at the bottom of the email. Nah. Woe is me, I'm stuck being Frum. Being from is a choice I feel like I make every single day. And I think such is the truth for most people who, who, who are Shemar Tayyarevitzvahs. Every single morning I wake up and I feel like the most beautiful thing I can do for my life in that day is to live a life of connection to Tayyarevitzvahs. Part of that also ties into the fact that for me some days it's difficult to have a Munam Bitochen because the, the reality of the situation is a lot of the things that I went through make a Munam Bitochen hard. On certain days, and there are days where where Imunu B'tachin is a real challenge, and and on, on those days, you know, to, to to get out of bed and go to a minyan shacharis, specifically on a day when you're struggling very intensely with your Imunu B'tachin, you cannot fall back on a decision you made 10, 15 years ago. You can't fall back on a decision you made a while ago. It needs to be personal. It needs to be daily. It needs to be something which is profoundly timely and applicable, and something which you tap into when you live. On a regular basis. So, to those that ask me, you know, how I decided to stay from, you know, for having the conversation in the evening, I sat it this morning. This morning, I woke up. It felt like the most beautiful thing I could do in my life. So today, I I woke up and I and I davened with a minion and I was kaveit and matera and I made sure my kids davened. And today, it's the most beautiful thing for me. So why shouldn't I be from? But I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's not like I'm from because I committed to something a million years ago and I have to constantly deal with the things that are pulling me away from it. For me, being a from Yid, being someone who's connected to the Rabbi Nishalaylam is a regular thing you sign up for. And it's a regular thing you find meaning and beauty and purpose in your life for. And I'll tell you to bring to your second question, Menachem, I think that being angry with the Rabbi Nishalaylam is, is, a, is, a, is a tangible part of, of a Yid who has a connection with the Rabbi Nishalaylam. I think that having a certain anger and a certain disappointment in the Ebesh there is a symptom of believing that the Ebeshter wants more for you. You know, for, for a number of years, we had a, we had a, a janitor, a maintenance director here in our base, Chabad. And for one reason or another, we, didn't, we couldn't get rid of him. We didn't get rid of him. And, you know, the first few times that he didn't do his job, we would get frustrated. We'd get disappointed. And after a number of years, it was like, okay, hey, he didn't do his job. At this point, we almost expect him not to do his job. Being disappointed that somebody has let you down speaks to a belief you have in that relationship. You expect them to show up. You expect them to be their best. You expect them to perform. You expect them to put in. Being disappointed that the Rabbi Nishaladim put something in your life that you feel is not justified, that you feel is not fair, that you feel you deserve better, I think speaks, speaks to an incredible depth that a person has in their relationship with the Rabbi Nishaladim. Because they believe that Akadosh Baruch who wants the best for them, and this certainly doesn't feel like the best. And so I'm not sure how these things are supposed to work, supposed to work together. And so, frankly, for me, are there times when I'm really angry at how my childhood went and the ramifications that it has on my life until now? Yes, because I believe that I have a daily relationship with the Rebbe Nishalem. I have a regular relationship with the Rebbe Nishalem, and he wouldn't do that to me. He wouldn't mess me up. And, and it feels like he messed me up. And 
what's vital for me in those moments to tap into is to realize maybe Hitake didn't mess me up. Maybe the same Hagadish Baruch that I feel like has my best interest at heart, Taka has my best, best interest at heart. And all that's necessary for me on my part is to get around to seeing how that's supposed to work out. And let's, let's, let's engage in the work in getting there. But I think that being in a spot where you feel that disappointment, I think it speaks to an incredible, to an incredible yachas that a, that a yid feels with a rebbeinu shalit. Amazing. It probably takes time to get there. Okay, and it's a regular thing. It's it's, it's something which you should do yeah. with a certain level of kviyas, as we talked about earlier. Let's go. We have so many questions here tonight. Okay, unmute. You're on. Hi. Hello. Can hear them. This will do the auto. No, I don't know. Yeah, I Are you there? There's a continuation on your question, actually. Okay, let's go to the next one. You're on. Unmute. Yeah, hi. Hi, thank you for taking my question. I would like to ask a question about like trauma in general. Sure. Like what are the most effective ways to deal with trauma? And if it's full if it's possible for a person to fully heal from it. And I guess the second part would be um kind of what we just touched on now was or you guys touched touched on now is like how to bring Hashem into the picture of dealing with um trauma in general. Dr. Fagan, I just went on a lengthy rant. You're up. <laughs> okay. So um, here, here's why trauma is, is so challenging. Because we we have this um, bunch of ingredients that, that kind of go into a traumatic experience. So you have the type of abuse that took place. You have the number of times that it uh, took place. You have the personality of the individual. You have the home environment. You have the school environment. You have the community environment. All, all of those different uh, factors. <clears throat> and and one response to trauma, e even if somebody kind of matches up on all of those things, in, in because because the, the the personality factors inherent in all of that, you're never going to have one person who who has the same response. Or which approach is is always going to work right, quote unquote, for for the same person, and and there's one other component that I'm going to put in there, and and that is that most typically, how somebody does the trajectory of of healing and and how somebody does over time, even with therapy and you know any intervention that that might be appropriate, really goes back to how was it when you shared this information with somebody else? What was the response to the trauma? So we have a reality that somebody can be horribly traumatized. And if the response to that trauma is an appropriate response, a loving, holding, caring response, then the capacity and the ability for healing is, is that much uh, more predictable. When you have somebody who, unfortunately, you know, there might be a, you know, they were abused one time, two times, a relatively low level of abuse, you know, objectively, it, quote unquote, wasn't that bad. 
you know, they have a very strong personality, but when they shared that response to somebody, there was a lot of rejection, there was a lot of blame. That's often when we see the, the most intense uh, traumatic responses. So with that, you know, whatever intervention, whether that's therapeutic, communal, or whatever it is, it, it really needs to match what it is that, that the person is is experiencing. So there, there are a lot of therapeutic techniques that are out there. Um, you know, we, we could probably do a, a whole show on that as well. I, I'm a huge fan of whatever works, right? So there's some people that will do CBT and there's some people that will do trauma-focused therapy and there's some people that will do DBT and some people that will do EMDR and some people will do EFT and, you know, the, the, the entire gamut of the alphabet. Ultimately, we what we want to be sure is that the intervention is is actually matching what it is that that somebody's going through, and and which really goes back to the question as as to you know why somebody didn't share uh, potentially uh, what what was going on for them, which which really taps into to the you know religious and and, and spiritual question as well, it, you know ultimately we we lead our lives a certain way. So it, it's not surprising, right, that when, when something bad happens, that's going to impact how we lead our life, right? So if if there is sexual abuse, right, it's going to, to have us question how we see the world and how we see our relationship with God, especially, which, which is all part of our life and the way we lead our life. It, you know, it's especially knowing that that in the subject of sexuality, right, there, there's a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. Uh, there's a could be a tremendous amount of sexual confusion, the sense of loneliness and isolation uh, you, you, often runs rampant. Um, and 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 because of all of those things, depending on who perpetrated the actual abuse, the more that person represents an authority figure in our religious or spiritual life, potentially the, the more impact that's going to have on on how we are seeing um, our spiritual and, and and religious existence and and those relationships you know tra- trauma is is obviously personal but it's also interpersonal right it's it's how we're relating to others because how we were abused right is was an interpersonal uh, offense as it were so the the impact of that trauma is, is also going to have uh, an interpersonal impact. Part of our interpersonal impact is how are we relating to God? And especially if there's, you know, a strong sense of betrayal, a strong sense of powerlessness, a sense of stigmatization that takes place because of the abuse, all of that is is going to enter into how we see ourselves and ultimately how we uh, participate in relationships. One of those relationships being our relationship with the divine. I want to. I'm going to leave the the clinical parts to the doctor. I want to just touch on it for a second and, and lean in more to the to the spiritual side of the question. For me personally, the, the fundamental understanding of trauma that I need to have trauma is a medical issue. Uh, at the end of the day, a, a person who experiences a traumatic episode to the extent that it leaves them with post traumatic stress disorder, in, in my particular instance, complex post traumatic stress disorder, it, it means that they endured a situation which completely overwhelmed their capacity to process that in a healthy fashion. Um, you know, we, we talk about people who are perpetually stuck in fight or flight mode. There's a whole bunch of ways to, to, to take the traumatic experience, and try to put it in more layman's terms, but it's, it's, it needs to be dealt. And I think this is something which our community has really started waking up to. And I think that was what clicked for a lot of community leaders, people who experience trauma are dealing with a medical issue. People who experience trauma need to be understood in the same way 
that we would we would try and accommodate people who had any sort of physical disability in, in, in our community. They have an emotional disability. They've been we. I, let me speak for myself. I've been robbed of the ability to process situations like a quote unquote normal person because of various episodes that I have been through that have completely fried my processing ability due to those to, to the traumatic nature of those episodes. So when we understand that, when we try to understand that from a from a ruchnistic perspective, how does it tie into Muna B'tachan having a relationship with God? I, I think we think about it in the same way as anybody who goes through any sort of dynamic where there's any sort of medical disability in, in a personal relationship. You know, someone who has any sort of medical setback finds a way to serve the the best they can through that dynamic and, and finds a way to live a life of a monumentachin through that dynamic. And I, I think the same applies. Long before I went to therapy and dealt with my issues, my younger brother was diagnosed with juvenile type 1 diabetes. He was nine years old. Uh, he wasn't obese. He hadn't done anything. No one in the family had diabetes. He was losing weight. They went to the hospital. He has diabetes. So he's a wonderful young man. And he's shaymatayir of mitzvahs. And he's, he cares passionately about the rabbinic shalalim. He never fasted Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is already a stretch. Yom Kippur, he eats bakas, bakas, mikashir, and he knows how to take little sips of grape juice. And a regular fast, man, the right? A regular fast for him is just he's eating and drinking, uh, not because he's callous, and not because he's not from, and not because he doesn't care about the Ebishter. The way the Ebishter created him, he has a medical deficiency. He cannot fast for 14 hours or 25 hours. And so he serves the Ebishter the best way he can, given the set of circumstances that he has, by eating on a fast day. And when he eats on a fast day, that's how he connects himself to the Holy Ghost, how he connects himself to godliness. I have uh, my own emotional deficiencies from my traumatic episodes, and it, and it handicaps me in a certain way, and I try to find a way to serve God in the same connected fashion, notwithstanding the, the disabilities and, the, and some of the deficiencies that I have. And I think by thinking about it in, in that sort of vein, it really colors it in a very sort of meaningful way. Okay, I'm going to read this email that just came in. All right, good luck. As someone who was once molested by a parent over the course of my childhood, I would love to know if there's any way I could just erase, forget this part of my past. I've been in therapy and have discharged because Baruch Hashem, my history is not stopping me from growing and thriving. I'm married to a wonderful husband and I'm raising two beautiful children. However, anytime I remind myself of the trauma, I have nightmares and day, day nightmares also. I keep on rehashing the abuse. So again, Anyway, I could just forget about this trauma. Also, is there any point in restarting therapy or joining a support group, which I feel will just open a can of worms being that I'm generally doing well? I see I am in touch with my parents, but I don't live in the same country as them. So I'm not seeing them on a regular basis. I would greatly appreciate any advice you could provide. If you find a way to forget about it, I'm going to put my email address in the chat. If you could please let me know the minute you figure that out because I have spent uh, close to 20 years not trying to forget about my own traumatic experiences, and I'm not yet to find out a way. So any data, any data you can uncover and trying to figure, uh, forget about what happened, please, please share it widely, because it would be very well received. I don't mean to be snarky, but, you know, uh, Dr. Fagan can touch on the clinical issue. Uh, and, and Dr. Fagan, I'll, I'll, I'll wait to see if you give a comment to the book. The first, the first book I was ever given in therapy is The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and I've got two thumbs up from the good doctor and, and the kids are numerous and a thumbs up from Musa. Okay, good. Uh, Menachem, you want to chime in on the body keeps the score? I don't know if you ever read it. Fine. The kids are what I took out from that book is that what happened to me as a child actually rewired neuro pathways in my brain. They, they, they took people who went through traumatic experiences as a child and they, in, they, they did autopsies on them and they found that, that the wiring in their brain was redone. 
I, I, I don't know how they had physiological symptoms from the emotional experiences they went through. So the short answer to your question is no, you can't forget. You, you, you can't forget the body keeps the score, the mind keeps the score, the heart keeps the score, the neshama keeps the score. It's going to have to be dealt with on yeah. some level. Somebody text now, the, what's the what's the book? The Body Keeps the Score. That's the, the, the Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Just type in the words, The Body Keeps. It'll show up on every search engine you ever used, Kashura search engines and otherwise. It's, 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 the, it's the gospel these days. But the point is, it's, it's there. It's present. It needs to be dealt with in some capacity. There, there is no, as Dr. Fagan mentioned multiple times, there's no singular path over here. There's no one size fits all. There's no universal theory. There's no number of times you go to therapy. There's no number of times you go to a support group. You will find a way to heal and grow, but you will find a way to heal and grow because expecting things to just revert back to their original state is, um, as far as I'm concerned, is not, not going to happen on its own. Dr. Fagan, you're welcome to argue or agree. I, yeah, no, I, I very much agree. Um, no, un unfortunately, the, there's there's no way to not remember. And and I would say the opposite, right? One of the clinical uh, symptoms that we often see in people is something called dissociation, which is when, uh, you know, they they leave reality and, and go somewhere else. You know, often you can kind of see that, uh, you know, happening in session. Uh, you know, we, we all daydream once in a while, but but this is sustained uh, daydreaming and and uh, avoidance of the the natural triggers that that are taking place and and um, that that's ultimately what we want to to not uh, be in that zone of dissociation. So what what you're describing really are some pretty classical symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, whether it's you know time or not to re-enter into treatment, you know I think is is a more uh, comprehensive and and you know very individualized uh, decision. But the things that you're describing are are clearly PTSD type uh, symptomology, um, you know, and and it might make sense you know to um, at at some point to to want to address them. You're you're right in the sense that you know potentially it opens up again a, another can of worms. But but here's here's what I will say about the can of worms. Whether you open it or not, there's a can of worms. And the only question is whether you're letting them out and dealing with them and then hopefully resealing them and then taking out another worm and dealing with those, or whether you're just going to be living with a can of worms. But but either way, it it exists and and that's not something that we can avoid. Um you, you know, we 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 mentioned the the earlier somebody um is abused in their life, it it uh, you know, Rabbi Zippel was was talking about the the clinical impacts, the the brain studies that are done, and and um, you know, the earlier somebody is abused, it it really the the abuse attacks, so to speak. Uh, you know, three main regions of the brain. You, you have the brain stem, which is you know in in charge of re uh, regulation, breathing rates. Um, you have a limbic system, and and you have our frontal cortex. The, the limbic system is is kind of like a mohawk that goes from from back to front and and that's uh considered part of higher order uh regulation and that's going to impact emotion your behavior your motivation your long-term memory um and 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 all of that is is you know potentially going to be affected and and different therapeutic techniques will try to address you know the, those different 
areas of the brain that, that potentially get impacted. So, you know, brainstem work, right, is, is all about regulation. And limbic system is, is all about how we regulate our emotion, how we regulate our, our behavior. Frontal cortex stuff is, you know, memory, attention, awareness, language, our consciousness, being present. That's where some of the mindfulness skills come in. EMDR, which, uh, you know, is, is tremendously uh, positive results with with regards to reprocessing trauma. It, it doesn't kind of like pluck it out like a pensive, you know, and, and put it somewhere else and, and take it away. It just makes the memories uh, more bearable and behavior more functional. I'm wondering before we continue next question, if somebody does have suffers from uh, sexual dysfunction or mental health challenges after marriage, they don't remember of being abused. Is it possible that that they don't remember? Maybe choose not to remember, or maybe happen too young. So not not remembering is not a choice. It's an unconscious process to protect ourselves. So it's quite possible that it didn't happen. It, it, you know, and they're having some sort of dysfunction for a different reason, but it's certainly possible that they simply don't remember. And that not remembering is, uh, is, is one of our body's inborn uh, abilities to try to protect ourselves. Uh, it's also possible that all of this happened very early um, prior to language development, and they simply don't have the words, um, which is, which is really where that whole uh, you know, notion of the body keeping score and and being in tune with how react how we react to certain people in certain situations. You know, sometimes our our, our body will tell us something. You know, we we've all experienced kind of like a sixth sense. You know, we make a left turn, you know, onto this street and like mm, something's wrong, or you meet somebody and it's like, oh, this person is affecting me in a certain way. So so that sixth sense, um, you know, is is really very much parallel to to this idea of the body keeping score. So if somebody is having some sort of reaction, the, the goal isn't necessarily, you know, how am I going to remember what it is that happened? Though, you know, that that might occur with time, but there's there's actually more of a chance that we're going to implant memories than, than kind of uncover them. Um, but, but dealing with the reality of that dysfunction and its potential connection to other things and, and the context of all of that in, in terms of family and community that, that might have shaped, you know, that experience in a certain way, that usually tends to be the the treatment approach. Okay, so here's a question somebody sent in. I am currently in therapy due to events that occurred during my youth. When I confined my parents about what was happening, they did not take it seriously and simply dismissed it. How can we address the denial of parents, school teachers, and others who often attempt to hush away or dismiss instances of abuse when it is disclosed within their family or community? I want to take that for a sec. Um, there's a misconception out there that this only happens in dysfunctional in dysfunctional families, and this only happens to children of negligent parents. If this happens to a child, must be must be. Where were the parents? How does this happen? You know, what did they miss? Where? Come on, you know, I was abused dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my own home literally a floor under where one of my parents was present and active. My parents were not negligent parents. They were, they were our excellent parents. And I want to say specifically, and now I say that as an adult, but as a child, they were very engaged. They were very present. You know, we're not talking about parents who just kind of let, uh, let fate take over and whatever mixed out and uh, 
will take care of everything. My parents were very engaged and very active, and this did not happen as a result of negligence. I think a lot of times when parents hear that this happened to one of their children, or to get really specific to your question, Menachem, when a child goes to their parent and says, this happens to me, what a parent hears in that moment is, oh my gosh, the one job they gave me attached to this child to, to care for the child and make sure that no harm befalls this child. I couldn't even do that. Like I, I even, I messed up in that area. Like, you know, when they give you a baby in the hospital and they say, hey, it's a boy, here, hold him. I, I, implied is, do me a favor, take care of this child because you're the child's parent and no one else is going to worry about this child like you're worrying about this child. And when a parent has a child sit down and say, mommy, tati, abba, ima, whatever, whatever you call them, uh, yeah, I went to camp and a thing happened and there's another kid and I was abused. A parent hears in that moment, wow, I... I dropped the ball, the, the most important task that I have. It's important to remember that so often that the sorts of people that do this to children are able to detect situations where they can manipulate certain weaknesses. It's not due to negligence. It's not due to a certain level of callousness or inavailability. More often than not, it is not any sort of irresponsibility on the parent's part. And if you're a parent that profoundly cares to care for your child, the care for your child is not expressed in what happened to them in that moment, which they're coming to discuss with you right now. The ultimate expression of the care you have for your child is expressed in how you handle that conversation, in how you handle that disclosure. That's your job as a parent. Your job is, a, you cannot as a parent foresee every encounter your child is going to have down the road, everyone they're gonna bump into in Beis Medrash and in high school and in summer camp and in here and in there. The world is a big, scary place. The world is a very big, scary place and our kids meet all sorts of people growing up and we as parents cannot expect to control every relationship they're going to have, every interaction they're going to have. What we can control is in those moments, in those conversations, when they come to us looking for that love in that moment, that's our responsibility as a parent, right there to care for them and, and guide them guide them through that conversation. And so I, I think it's challenging because I think a lot of parents perceive disclosures as an indictment on their parenting. When, when Adarab, I would say that the greatest litmus test of their parenting is how they handle that very conversation. That's the thing you want to add. Yeah, and what what Rabbi Zippel, you know, is 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 talking about, I th I think, is um, you know, really really important, right? And and kind of goes to how does that disclosure take place? When does that disclosure take place? Dr. Fagan, I just want to mention one thing on what he said. <clears throat> I always have the, the the notion that children that do come from the dysfunctional homes are the much easier targets than the children that do come from these loving, very involved parents. Is that a misconception? Well, no. the The reality is that it's both. Um, you know, simply because it's 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 everyone. E everyone has equal opportunity to be abused. So, you know, one side of the coin really is what Rabbi Zippel is talking about, right, is, is that there can be situational factors that don't allow for the best of parenting to come out in that particular moment or in that particular situation. And, and, and certainly parents, you know, part of uh, school programming and prevention skills, right, need to, need to be to, to prepare parents for, for that singular moment, right, where, where it kind of all comes down to this. Um, you, you know, the reality is, is that everything in, in life has a license except for parenting, right? And, and, and uh, we, 
you know, when, when schools uh, mandate, you know, for, for parents to come to training or whatever it is, right. The, the parents that, that don't need it, they show up and the parents that do need it, you know, do it. So it, it's, um, so, so half of the coin is, is very true, right. Is, is that it can be completely situational and parents might've dropped the ball, even though, you, you know, they can be wonderful, loving, caring, and, and it, you know, certainly hits them as, oh my gosh, this was my fault. But but there's also another side of the coin, which really goes to your question, right? And and that is that there there are certain parental factors that are going to make it more likely that a child does get abused by recognizing that the, those parents are not involved, or they might be overly involved, right? Too enmeshed or or too loose in terms of those boundaries, and that could establish right a, a, a matthias of of a child looking for for something very very different. And then when they finally do have this, you know, courageous, brave, um, monumental moment of of being able to share this, the 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 parent is actually never in the capacity to rise to the occasion, and and that unfortunately is nothing new. And the response to that trauma really is is the thing that that potentially set the stage for the abuse to happen you know in and of itself so so both realities are 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 can be very very true you have you know kids who are abused who are from wonderful families amazing parents and you know this factor and that factor but but the other side of it is 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 um you know is is unfortunately true as well and 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 ultimately that's what complicates it and and just going back for one moment right this is really what i was talking about before that very often it's the response to the trauma that that will tell us how somebody does instead of the actual traumatic event itself. Okay, I want to jump into another question, a very interesting question somebody sent in. I'm a mashkiach in a high school yeshiva, and two boys came to me expressing concerns about other boys engaging in inappropriate activities. I called them the boys and they completely denied it. Now I'm not sure what my next step should be. Can Dr. Fagan advise on how to determine if this is a genuine concern or should we consider just letting it go and let it, allowing these things just to pass? Uh, don't let it pass. Do something about it. It doesn't mean that the first two kids are right. Right? We have we have an idea of Adam Zomimim. It, it doesn't mean that these two are right and those two are wrong. I, I would say that the, the second set of two have a vested interest in denying activity that took place. So, you know, part of this is uh, investigatory, but the the more clinical uh, and relational aspect of this is, ha have you, adult, established enough of a relationship with these kids Which to make it acceptable and open enough for them to be talking about whatever challenges that, that they might be going through? And and if the answer is yes, then we can talk about, you know, uh, techniques in terms of openness and, and whatever it is. But, but you know, every school, every mashkiach, every rabbi, right, needs to ask him or herself, have I created the avira enough that, that these kids can actually be honest? Am I going to reward honesty or am I going to punish honesty? And if these kids, right, have the sense of, like, well, if I tell him the truth, he's going to kick me out. So so why on earth would would they want to be telling the truth? You know, when, when I do mashkiach training or, you know, rabbi training, I tell them that, you know, whatever they learned in mashkiach school, you know, to ask the kid, you know, the, the first question that every mashkiach will ask a kid, you know, he's he's sitting across the desk from him and, and every mashkiach, right, apparently in, in mashkiach school, learn to ask the kid the question, so do you know why you're here? And and it's mimanavshach, 
right? If the kid says, yes, I know why I'm here. So maybe that's not the reason, in which case I'm giving you more information. But if I don't say anything, then you're going to call me a liar. Of course, you know why you're here. So the, the best option for the kid is just to stay quiet. And, and if you stay quiet, so then the machkia is going to yell at me. So we need to switch that question, right? Do you know why you're here? Of Let me tell you why I think you're here. And, and how are we going to talk about the following problem? And, and, and that's about building that relationship way before this event ever happened to, to create the, this, this avira where, where openness and honesty can be rewarded as opposed to, you know, kind of like this very gotcha uh, type of mitzias. So, you know, every school, every school at this point in life, you know, needs a mental health professional, uh, you know, on their speed dial. They need to be able to consult with somebody. Hey, how can I handle this situation and that situation? What's the best approach? You know, if 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 you're running a yeshiva and don't have a good relationship with a mental health person, in my mind, you're completely missing the mark. Okay, let's go. We have a bunch of live questions. We have a lot to cover, so let's try to go a little quicker. So I want to cover a lot of them. You can unmute now. Hello. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes. All right. Figure out the problem. Okay. So, so I guess the question I have is, so what steps should parents take upon finding out that their child has been abused? After you hear the question? Yeah. I love how simple the question is. I think all of us were like, okay, and what what's the what's the follow-up of the question? And and I think and I think the question is incredibly simple in its own right. And yeah, to the shoil for keeping it that simple. When you find out that your child was abused, I, I think that you should you should not do the following things. You should not worry about what the repercussions are going to be for the offender. You should not worry about if how if and how you're going to corroborate the story. You should not worry about anything that pertains to the future, specifically the shidduchim of the child that is disclosing to you or the shidduchim of any of your other children. And most importantly, most importantly, you should not worry whether or not you know the right thing to say, because by and large, there is no text or, or, or content you can find on the Internet, which is the perfect thing to say in that sort of scenario. The, the most important thing you can do in that moment is to is to think to yourself, what can I do right here, right now in this conversation, in this moment to create the safest and least judgmental moment for my child, period. And, and, that, and that is if your child is, is, is 4, 8, 14 or 28. I, I believe that the dynamic is, is the same across the spectrum. And you should consider something else, in my opinion. We have talked, both myself and Dr. Fagan, at great length about children not disclosing, about why kids sit on this information for so long, for decades. Think to yourself that in this moment, right now, you're finding out that your child went through what they went through. For whatever reason, that secrecy has ended. And your child has now made the decision to share this sort of information with you. Think about what that says about the relationship that you have with your child. Think about what that says about the trust that your child is placing in you to be a vessel and to hold that information for them and respond to that trust, respond to the love and the trust and the connection that 
your child feels with you in the moment to want to allow you into that space, to be there for them in this moment and reciprocate that love. Don't worry about what you're going to say. No survivor that has ever disclosed has had a perfect sentence in mind and has been sitting there on the couch across from a parent waiting for them to utter the perfect 11 words in the right order. Don't worry about what to say. Don't worry about what the coming days, weeks, and months look like. Hold that moment and hold your child with love and acceptance and non-judgmentalism, and that's all they're after. Hey, you want to go to the next one? Dr. Fagan? Yeah, sure. I, I, uh, maybe I misheard. Was was the question, how do I identify? Or if my child comes to me and says, what do I do? Pretty much. I mean, it could be that as well. But if your child comes to you and tells you, you know, something happened, how should a parent handle that? Great. Listen to what Rabbi Zippel said. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay. Hi. Hi there. Thanks for taking my question. I appreciate Coach Menachem for having you guys on here. I appreciate Dr. Dr. Fagan for being here because being a doctor, everyone listens to you more. And Rabbi Zippel, I appreciate you because your story mirrors a lot of other people's story also that either weren't courageous enough to come out or just wasn't the right time yet. Um, Usher asked me to share my story a little. I've been sexually abused for a year and a half. In the outside, I come from a very, call it normal family, one out of eight. And I got a ride with a guy and not getting support or anything from my parents. I called him for a year and a half. I don't remember anything he did to me, but I know what he did to me. Um, I've gone on my own to therapy for many, many years without my father knowing, without my father paying for it. And actually my father did find out like two years later, I got kicked out of yeshiva for texting a girl. So I told him and that was the worst thing, the way he deal dealt with it. He totally didn't know how to deal with it and therefore he didn't say anything. And I felt like I have no one and I'm just recyclable material and I just don't matter. So I didn't really have much to do with him for many, many years. I mean, I had small talk conversations, but not much. On the outside, I still look very from. And um, I don't, I don't grapple with Hashem per se. I don't know, it's confusing. I'm not going to get into that. But what I did want to say is, yeah, that we do, like Rabbi Zippel said earlier, we look very normal. My father's still learning in Kailo, in case you're wondering how in the box I am. father's still learning in Kailo. I still look very normal and yeshivish. And it's just part of that brings the isolation so much more, so much greater. Since I look so normal on the outside, finding someone to connect to with the inside that I have is very hard. So I was asking, I wanted to know if a Zippel or the doctor could connect me, networking with other people, survivors. I've been to 
12-step programs, and even over here with people that have similar issues of survivors, they really don't get it. They don't understand it. And having just a network of other people that could relate, I think would be very, very, very beneficial. Sure. So what, what specific neighborhood are you in? I've got a bunch of numbers here on my phone. I'll be happy to send out some people's names and numbers. We'll just kind of, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm not going to have my, have my contact info and please take it from them and, and be in touch afterwards. I want to say this though. Uh, you hit up, you hit the nail absolutely on the head. Um, I think being able to feel genuine and yourself uh, in your own skin, I can relate to that personally. Um, you can feel like you can stop putting on, the costume every day. And I'm not telling you to drop you the scratch. I'm not telling you to stop looking the way you look. Uh, but I, I think that finding congruence between looking normal and how you feel on the inside is going to be a huge bracha in your life. I, I, I want to use that as a plug for the continued momentum in the community to create these sorts of networks for survivors. And, and I want to take it maybe a step really extreme and really drastic to, to encourage communal leaders, Rabbanim, Mashkichim, Rashi Yeshivas, to highlight the fact that there are survivors in our community. I, I think it's vital that the point continue to be made for men, for women, for whomever, that there are, uh, there are survivors out there in every cries of Klal Yisrael, in every kehila, in every community, in every dynamic, in every yeshiva. Dr. Fega mentioned earlier the poll he took of the, of the Rabbanim, you know, how many of them knew that they had a survivor in, in their community. And Dr. Fega and I chuckled when you told the story because the 10% of the people who didn't raise their hand and didn't stand up should feel ashamed that no one in their community has felt comfortable enough to disclose to them. And, and it must be so taboo to be a survivor in that person's community. I think it's vital that we continue to elevate the conversation in our communities, that there are survivors in every shul, in every kehila, on every block of Qal Yisrael. And, and there will be communities built, there will be networks of, of support that will be formed, and people will feel comfortable in their own skin. There's no price that can be that can be placed on that. There's not an amount of therapy that you can do that will take the place of that. There's no medication that you can take that will take the place of that. It's vital that we as a community continue to be mechazic survivors, being with one another and sticking together and supporting each other. Um, and so reach out to me afterwards. We'll, we'll see who we can put you in touch with whatever corner of cloud you stroll you're in, but I, I cannot stress this enough. Dr. Yeah, uh, not a lot more to add. You know, I think beautifully said, you know, obviously that that sense of loneliness and isolation, you know, really, really comes out. Um, you, you know, and I think everybody's hope, you know, for, for every survivor is that they can both practically be able to connect themselves with other people with similar kinds of stories. It's never going to be the same. But to be able to connect themselves with with people who you know kind of know where it is that they're that they're coming from, um, but also recognizing right that um, if you can't necessarily attend a meeting or be part of a group, which obviously we encourage you to do, but but if that's not possible, you know, re reading a book, um, being part of a forum, those are all obviously less personal, but allows you to tap in to the collective power of others going through what it is that you might be going through 
which which immediately will address that sense of loneliness and isolation in ways that individual therapy never could. Mm -hmm. And let's go to the next slide question. Mute. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you for taking my question. Um, I'm coming from a role of a teacher. I teach 12th grade, and I sometimes get calls from girls that are in school, sometimes they're out of school already. Most of them are over 18. And obviously if they're calling me, they don't feel they can speak to their parents. How do I deal with it? I want to help. I know they need their parents for support, yet the parents are not supporting them or not cooperating or the children or the girl that herself doesn't feel comfortable with her parents. And I want to support her, but I don't want to tell her, your oh, what's with your parents? On the other hand, they're not there to help her. So what's my role as a teacher? Um, I, you know, I would say that that it's you know Baruch Hashem they have you in 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 their lives and for whatever reason you know you were put in that position that you develop that relationship and and they're able to come to you and and probably the the most common time that uh you know abuse comes out for girls is you know that that seminary age when they're you know contemplating dating and relationships and getting married you know sometimes it's a little later you know when they start college classes but you know th that's really the typical time where, where they really start thinking about it added independence uh you know moving to the next stage in life so you know Baruch Hashem, you you obviously developed an, an amazing relationship that that they can feel uh open to speaking to you Th that that's the amazing news the 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 chiyuv that that I believe you have, and I'm not saying this obviously halachically, but uh, ethically, morally, uh, emotionally, is is to be sure that you're seeking out the best training that you possibly can in your role, and you know probably means you know getting the school to pay for that training and and supervision and consultation with somebody who you feel would be able to answer the very very specific questions that that come up in your life. You you were put in this role. Uh, for for better or for worse, you might have asked for it, you might not have, but but being there, um, you know, in my mind, you you now have an obligation to to be able to be trained in the best possible way that you can, you know, in within the confines of your role in in order to be maximally helpful to these girls yeah. that are speaking with you. What training do you recommend I take? We we'll we'll talk about it offline because it's going to be very very specific, um, but 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 certainly I'm happy to try to speak about it. The question is if once they have training and they become a social worker, the parents won't let them go to this, won't let them talk to you anymore. That's you, you could be a professional layperson. There, you know there there uh, there there are plenty of opportunities for somebody you know within within our, our boxes you know of of the confines of every role. There's 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 a job for everybody. So what you're saying is very important for those who have a relationship and people open up, they should have the, the training needed um, how to take it to the next the next step. Yes. I just want to, I think that was so well said. I want to just uh, piggyback on that for a quick sec. The world is changing drastically. The from community is not immune to that. The amount of information that is available uh, in the world today is very different than when I was a bacher in Beis Madrash. The fact that one of the earlier uh, live questions came from someone who's currently in the yeshiva in, in the Beis Madrash dynamic, 
who has the ability to be on a WhatsApp group and see this information communicated and can go participate in this shear and be exposed to certain realities that he's not hearing about at home is an incredible thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. It definitely has its challenges and its disinus. But we live in the age of information where 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 there, there are, our, our kids, our, our bachrim, our girls are being exposed to more and more things and they want to know what to think about those things. And it places, as Dr. Fagan says, a whole bunch of people that interface with these children in a very different level of responsibility, moras and rebbies and rashi shivas and mashkichim, whoever the case is. And so I, I think that needs to be stepped into. Get the training, realize the role you play in the in, in the lives of your of your girls. If you've been a, someone who's been in chinuch for a while it's probably changed drastically over those years and and what an incredible opportunity what an incredible schos to be able to shed light on those girls lives in ways you could have never imagined and i i think that there's an opportunity there to use it out to the fullest okay let's go to the next live question you're on uh hi i'd like to ask a different kind of question um i i've i saw uh, a few stories um, uh, years ago you probably the two of you are very aware uh, Mike Fege, uh that she was uh, an Australian that abused uh, girls in Melbourne and she was um, deported finally after a, a, a long difficult fight and she was not the only one. She was the main one, but she was not the only one. Um, I started looking into it, and uh, there was um, there was a, a boy, uh, a Lubavitch boy also, that uh, he was abused and he had to fight, and uh, he ended up, you know, leaving from kite and opening up a um, like sort of a. Uh, a uh, non-profit uh, to fight uh, abuse um, and there was another case of also um, I believe it was in Australia I'm not so sure um, another case was very very famous also that um, that uh, it was in Australia that he was abused and the parents um, step uh, uh, protected and fought with the child and they were banned from the, the, the shul and the community. They had to make aliyah because they couldn't be, stay in the community anymore. So my question is about the community. And as we all remember very well about the, the author, I don't want to talk, say his name, um, the community, why the community as a whole uh, protect uh, those uh, perpetrators? Uh, why uh, people don't uh, don't uh, this, uh, I don't know I say people I don't know exactly who uh, we don't say more loud why we don't fight harder um, to change this cover up you know it's, it's a big cover up the way I see that author stays so many years and uh, nobody knew what was going on and he did to, for, for, to so many so many people. And there's so many stories of uh, of uh, people abused that they had to change communities because the community banned them because the the the, the school uh, uh, protect this the, the teacher. Why, as a community as a whole, they are protecting these people? Okay, who wants to take that first? <laughs> So uh, I, I guess I'll jump in, you know, the, the uh, you know, I, th I think the, the passion in your voice and about the topic, you know, I, I think everybody is, is feeling. Um, 
to you know tonight's show really is uh, to focus on victims and what their experiences are and to get us in tune to how we can identify, prevent, respond. Uh, and, and it's really in, in that way to, to pay tribute to, to victims and, and what it is that they go through and, and their healing and, and the process. Your question, you know, really is about perpetrators, about offenders, which needs to be a show in and of itself. Terribly important. The communal response, the individual response, how it, how that interfaces with uh, criminal justice system, potentially with child protective services. I mean, it's just such a huge topic. Um, but in my mind, tonight is is really to to pay tribute and to support um, to to support communally uh, on a parent level, individually uh, victims, and and I and I really hope you know that that we can do a follow up with with regards to. Um, what 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 perpetrator offender uh, treatment looks like, both from a management standpoint and a communal standpoint as well. I agree with Dr. Fagan. I, I you know, and given Dr. Fagan mentioned the, the emotion in the question, I, I don't know if there's an answer uh, that's available to any of us you now that can provide justification for the way certain certain stories that that you have mentioned and others out there have been botched on a communal level. I, I think. Maybe there are others that feel that there's a more nefarious explanation at play. I think for me, more than anything, change is hard. Change is heavy. Change requires people who are really bought in, who who aren't interested in taking the lazy and the easy way out. And some communities aren't blessed to have people that are committed to doing the difficult work. And so if an allegation is made, and that means changing the way we've been doing things in the community for 30, 40, 50 years... Some communities say, absolutely, we understand the gravity of this issue. And some communities say, I don't know, seems like a lot of work. Um, and, and and I think that's the path before us. Is you know, with a, a lot of communities are blessed with leaders that are willing to take on the incredible amount of work that it's involved. And others are still waiting for those leaders. So let's end off with one last question. Then we're going to go to the ending, okay? Somebody sent a question. This might sound like a weird question, but my story is very similar to Rabbi Zippel's story. Um, and now I think to myself, if I had a magic way to make this all disappear and move forward in my adult life, what could I do? Uh, um, yeah, wow, that's a, that's a one-time offer, take it or leave it. You know, you got to give your answer in 60 seconds or else it goes up and spoke. Um, you know, I, I think that, and I mentioned this earlier kind of in my monologue, I, I think that wishing that the whole thing had never happened is... It's probably inaccurate and maybe a little bit of the of a, of a cop out. If I, had, if I had a magic wand and could redo one thing or could change one thing now, and I think that how it would pertain to my personal life and how it pertains to the communal reality now, I wish it was highlighted more. You know, Dr. Fagan mentioned many times this evening about about preventative education, and we have seen the from community grow in the area of preventative education by leaps and bounds over the past. 10 years and over the past five years and then more and more and yeshivas are getting involved and that's amazing. I feel like preventative education also requires one important component at the end. And that is that we share with our kids that we're going to give you preventative education. And for a lot of kids, the preventative education is going to weed out a lot of potential situations. And yet in every group of kids that undertakes preventative educations, preventative education, there's still going to be one, two, however many kids that are going to find themselves in a compromised situation. And for those kids, it's vital that they know that this happens. This happens in our communities. It happens in the best of our communities. It happens to the Salta and the Shamna. It happens in the Rashi Yeshiva's families. It happens in the Shluchim's families. 
no, there, there is not a, there's not a section of Klal Yisrael that is immune from this problem, given how from they are, or, or, or how miyuchis they are, or how many years the collective of the family spent in Kailo. I wish I knew that as a kid. And I wish that more young people in our community, boys, girls, Bahrim, Sem girls, whoever it is, were aware of that now, were aware of that reality and how profound it is and how common it is. And that they would have, that, that that reality would give them a semblance of a sense of community and just a drop less isolation. If I had a magic wand, that's what I would wish for. That 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 reality would be shared more in a communal perspective. Okay, well, like, well, I'm sorry. We're going to do one more live question because I forgot that. Yeah, hi, sorry, are you there? Yeah, hi. hi. Can you hear me? Okay, because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. oh, good. The microphone wasn't working. Uh, you kind of answered my question uh, a little earlier. You talked about these two guys in the yeshiva that you suspected some behavior. I I was wondering if there was a way they were detecting get. Uh, better at detecting, I don't know, potential predators. Uh, it sounds like the, maybe there's a better checks and balances system now, but I just remember years ago, there was a, it was a scandal that broke out of the kids at a camp or they were molested or something. And it turned out my co-worker knew the, indirectly knew the guy, her brother had gone to yeshiva with him. And according to the brother, they, they, they thought this guy was strange. So I don't know, just because so, you know, somebody could be, you know, Strange. I don't know if that necessarily makes him a deviance, or would there be any other signs though, like maybe violence, or uh, you know, obsession, you know, you know, certain behaviors. Is there is there any way that I know that some people, you know, predators can be very normal, even charming. But is there is there something that maybe to look for, or something that the is this some like like DNA test? Uh, DNA, but being just certain—I don't say vigilant or. Let's um, you, you know, may, maybe let's just generalize. You know, the the question just a tad. In any school that has dorm facilities, any yeah. camp that has uh, teenage boys, mm -hmm. right, needs to have a set of policies and procedures in place to address the fact that we're dealing with teenage boys. And without that set of policies and procedures in terms of how we're going to monitor, how we're going to have those relationships, what's acceptable behavior, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's doomed for failure. So obviously, you know, if, if they're, um, you know, like we said before, right, schools, schools need to have at this point in life, schools need to have mental health professionals on speed dial if they don't have any mm -hmm. in-house. But especially if we're housing boys, right, there, there needs to be a very, very distinct set of policies and procedures that take place. That that's going to be very very specific, you know, to to the the institution that that you know we're we're talking about. But you know, sometimes behavior that's taking place, you know, be between uh, two people in school, you know, can can have nefarious intent. Uh, you know, obviously, if there are power dynamics that are taking place between them, but but sometimes it's you know a very uh, normal experimentation that's taking place. So you know, we we need a comprehensive approach to to be able to to handle these kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to answer the question for a sec, if I might. Um, my, my abuser is currently doing a very long time at the Utah State Correctional Facility. And I'll tell you this, if you ran a personality check type, if, if you wanted to profile the sorts of people who do this to the extent that, that she did, um, she would seriously be the last person you'd think of. You know, a healthy mm -hmm. background, married, kids, stable income, no sorts of visible mental health issues. 
I believe that we cannot profile out sorts of people who do this. I, I don't know that there's a metric, uh, a personality type, uh, a background of the sorts of people that, uh, that, that do that sort of thing. Uh, I want to say this, though, and, and if I understood the question earlier um, about the yeshiva, so there were two bachrim that came to the mashkiach that suspected that another two bachrim were doing something inappropriate to a third party. Oh, sure, is that a, is that a correct? Uh, is that a correct? Uh, it, I think Dr. Fagan kind of touched on this, but if I'm the mashkiach, you know what I'm thinking to myself in that moment? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna confront the, the two perhaps potential offending parties. Either they will or won't tell me the truth. Why aren't the guys that are caught up on this on the receiving end? Why aren't they coming to me? Whether or not I can weed out the offenders uh, it depends what a, if if, a good, if I'm a good investigator or not. But why is this complaint coming from an outside? concerned party as opposed to the Bahrain that might be the victims over here why don't they feel comfortable to open up to me because i feel that's how we're going to deal with this as a society you know the no is going to have a personality test he's going to have a list of andre bachrams like i don't know these two red flags eh. if i'm the mashkiach i want to know why am i not creating an environment at the moment something happens to one of these guys he comes to me straight away and confides in me and then i can deal with it accordingly as opposed to having to hear about it through the grapevine and going through the whole song and dance and so I, I think we're going we're gonna to heal a whole lot more issues by creating those sorts of safe conversations that way. Okay. Tonight's share has been Gavaldic. All the people that were waiting to ask questions, we're just going to have to have them come back every week so we can cover all these thousands of questions that are coming in. And I was going to believe, let's go to the closing part. I know uh, Dr. Zippel, or Rabbi Zippel is already knocked out, but let's go to the closing quickly. Okay. So first of all, aggressive uh, coming on. Um, uh, Dr. Dr. Fagan and Reverend Zippel for coming on tonight. I give a tremendous chizik. And there's a lot of people here much tonight. I mentioned thousands, thousands of people. Hopefully, we'll listen to it over the next few weeks and hopefully for a long time. And they'll get the chizik they need and guidance they need. Again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night, 9 30 on the Zoom ID, we have different topics, different abonim, different therapists. Please join us next week. We're going to have Rabbi Zalman Duchman. We're going to talk about Eric Sisrol, a very uh, interesting topic. We're going to talk about what's going on over there. And you know, we're he's he's a big ball duck, he collects tremendous amount of money, but uh, we're gonna be talking about a lot of important things. Please join us again. Everything's recorded at Shem and it will be on menachemburnfall.com. If anybody has any questions, you can please email coach menachem at gmail.com. Tonight's share is 172. If you want to listen to it on the phone, it'll be up next by tomorrow, 848-777-4769. That's 848-777-GROW. It's next show will be on all the podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and all those places. Thank you to all the advertising sponsors, Lakewood Scoop, Elliot Ariel from Firetown Central, Kyla Kaufman from JCN, and uh, Dr. Gabriel. I don't know if you have a website, Dr. Zippel. People are asking how to get a hold of you, how they reach you, whatever you want to give out. You're more than welcome to. You can give out your home address, your cell phone, your social security number, whatever you're comfortable with. Dr. Dr. Fagan, you have a website, right? Yes. So what's your website? To kunimcounseling.com. Do you mind posting it in the chat so people can see it if you don't mind? Sure. And Rabbi Rabbi Zippel. Um, anyway, somebody can get a hold of you if they want to get um, for the Ayla Baton that's that's online. Online, the best way to, for random for total strangers to get it and hold it is social media. I, I try to be very diligent about responding to all of my uh DMs, etc. It's at Utah Rabbi U T A H R A B B I. Um, I'll put an email address here. I'm a little bit less meticulous about getting to every email, they pile up after a while. But the Ezra Sashem will do my best and I'll put it here in the chat. Okay, so just put it in the chat and let's go to closing. First of all, tonight's show was. So powerful, so vulnerable. It, it really, I'm blown away. I'm being honest. I'm also blown away from the oil to come on and to be open and vulnerable and to really, 
you know, it's unbelievable. We're dealing, Baruch Hashem, we're holding in 2024, with Klai Yisrael's holding, we could sit here on a program with hundreds of people and to be vulnerable and talk about such a topic. I think we've come a long way from many years ago. And I feel like the Ilum is in reality and we're trying, it takes time, it takes, you know, it takes there, but we're getting there. I feel like we're doing very well. And to have people like Dr. Fagan and Reverend Zippel to come out there and be strong and open and really help people. I mean, um, people just need physic, people need hope, people need advice, and we can't live in this la-la land, and we have to live in reality. We're going to go to Coach Menachem, then Reverend Zippel for closing, and Dr. Dr. Fagan will wrap it up. Coach Menachem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Fagan, Reverend Zippel. And Baruch Hashem, we had a successful night with a lot of Siyat Bishmaya. And like we heard, talking about someone who has never came out with their story and they have the living with that darkness all by themselves or those who came out but still feel lonely, uh, moving from a victim to survive and eventually, with Hashem's help, to thrive, to come out. It doesn't mean they have to come out like Rabbi Zippel, but to be able to talk to someone. And eventually you can make, you know, get a group have that um, sense of community where, where it's okay. We're not perfect. Everybody has their stories. And, you know, these are these are stories. To be able to have a place you feel comfortable, you feel okay, and you can continue life. And uh, I, it sounds like a lot of people want to get rid of it. And, yeah, Hashem should help. Uh, the, but it sounds like it's just not something that goes away. It's something that lives with a person, however with the right guidance, right therapy, with the right uh, support, um, they can look at it and take a deep breath and continue. It doesn't take take them over as if, you know, for those beginning. Yeah. Sorry, no, sorry. Just before we go to Reverend Zippel, I just want to read it out because people don't watch it. Reverend Zippel's email address is A-V-R-E-M-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y at gmail.com. Dr. Fagan's email uh, website is Tikun Counseling. It's T I K U N I M dash counseling.com. You're putting it in the chat? I put it in the chat, but people listen to it on podcast. They're not going to, you know, they can't see it. Very good. Very good. Hey, Rabbi Zippo, let's go. Wrap it up. Give us some so, uh, Yeah, I What did you come out with? I alluded to this earlier. When I was grappling with coming forward publicly, one of the issues that I had to deal with was that. There was like no one to talk to. There was not a single person that I could talk to in the community that was from, you know, forget and, and was open about this. There was like no frame of reference at all. Zero. I am a Chabad Shliach, which I think in a conventional sense, you know, we think of Chabad Shluchim as people, the Babish Rebbe motivated to spin a globe when they're in Kailo and wherever, you know, the, the thumbtack lands, they get on a plane and they go. And it's almost like a competition to see how dramatically far out there geographically you can get. And that's it. Uh, on a deeper level, on a more doctoristical level, the Lubavitcher Rebbe challenged us to think about shluchis as any spot that we're aware of in life, any void that we're aware of in life, that there is a lack there, there's any sort of chusarin that we're aware of, we should see that as a as a, as a call from on high, we should see that as a hisayrus from the Rebbe Nishalayim to make sure that that void is taken care of. So if it happens to be there's a community in Timbuktu that's lacking their basics of Yiddishkeit, and you're aware of that, get on a plane and move to Timbuktu and put on film and give out chab scandals. In that moment when I was grappling with coming forward, I had I had this chus to think about working in this space in a similar way. And I think it's something which is not only pertain to, to, to Babaj Chassidim. I, I saw a space that, that it felt lonely and it felt isolating and it felt untended to. 
And I thought to myself, you know, if, if I see such a spot in life, if I see such a void in life, maybe it's there for me to make a difference and like, like the Shtech moves to Timbuktu. And so I stepped into that spot. I, I tried to make a small difference here and a small difference there. And Baruch Hashem, the opportunities to continue to make an impact in that, in that space continue to grow almost midayayim And so I, I think that for the survivors that are on there, for those that know survivors in, the, in, the, in their own lives, in their personal lives, to think about our lives' journeys in the same way, that, that truly every reality we go through in life is a gift from the Rabbanu Shalom, and not so much a gift as much as it's an opportunity. It's, it's, the, it's the chance to think about how I can make a unique impact, a specific difference in my slice of life in a way that nobody else can. And sometimes it's geographically getting on a plane. Sometimes it's in, in a much different sense, seeing every challenge that we have in life as an opportunity from the Rabbanu Shalom to make a unique difference is something which I try to think about every single day, and it works for me, and I would encourage you to try the same. For Dr. Gabriel Fagan. Yeah. Oh, words I, of wisdom. Uh, well, I don't know. that That's a tall order, especially at this hour. But uh, let me try to leave with one message, and, and that message, like everything else, is, is a message of balance. Um, <clears throat> we want to encourage parents, schools, community leader, leaders, victims, perpetrators of abuse to do something and not stay stuck. The The most important thing that anyone in that category can do is to take one step forward to enhance their life, to enhance the community, to enhance a family in, in some way, shape or form. It, you know, we, we all come up with, you know, these as well, if I do this, then that, and, and, and we wind up just staying stuck so I want to encourage everybody to to take one step forward in in order to to unstick, you know, what whatever your particular role might be. But with that, it it needs to be balanced with the reality that we want everybody to stay active, but not obsessed. We we want parents to speak to children, but not in an obsessive kind of way. We want this topic to be brought up, whether it's healthy sexuality, functioning, whatever it is. We we want that to be brought up, but not in an obsessive, uh, certainly not in a creepy kind of way. So if, if you know, kind of to me, the, the parting message is we, we all need to find that balance between taking one positive step forward, not, but not making this all consuming. So whether that's treatment, whether it's communal activity, whatever your role might be, my 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 hope, uh, you know, my my particular prayer for for everybody is is that we can all strike that balance of of staying active but not obsessed. Beautiful. Thank you, Doctor Fagan, for coming on tonight. Or Reverend Zippel for coming on on this hard day that he moved today. And uh, we'll see everybody next week, same time, same place. Or Zalman Duchman. And to be an amazing share, please join us and be part of it. And thank you very much. Have a great night.